encouraged the bringing in of slaves by offering grants of land, not in excess of 50 acres, to bona fide settlers for each imported able-bodied slave above the age of 14. Adding more white people to the area, they believed, would offset threats of black and indigenous raids and rebellions. Larger planters received more, and this required a greater system of policing and patrols to monitor the growing potential for revolt. In his classic text, Black Reconstruction in America, W.E.B. Du Bois describes the labor of bonds people and the exploitation of the white worker as an economic rivalry that the latter overcame through jobs as police. It would have seemed natural that the poor white would have refused to police the slaves, but two considerations led him in the opposite direction. First of all, it gave him work and some authority as an overseer, slave driver, and member of the patrol system. But above and beyond this, it fed his vanity because it associated him with the masters. Gradually, the whole white South became an armed commissioned camp to keep Negroes in slavery and to kill the black rebel. The freedom of the enslaved meant losing a subjugated class of laborers that capitalists exploited for wealth. Freedom also meant the loss of jobs for the thousands of white overseers who received a small wage to control the slaves. These sets of economic arrangements and exploitations built the foundation of the United States, England, the Netherlands, France, Spain, and Portugal, and additionally, as historian Walter Rodney teaches, undermined the development of Africa's land, resources, and people. Police, overseers, militias, and free whites were not solely patrolling black people because of race. They had to prevent losing a valuable labor source. There was so much invested in slavery, profits, industries, jobs, status, that its abolition seemed unlikely, impossible, and not worthwhile for many people who wanted to preserve it. The people who policed the slaves, as Du Bois explained, were not slave owners and often quite poor. White planters with means or luck could pay to opt out of their patrol duties, and the patrol gradually shifted to a more systematic policing system, mostly employing poor white workers. During arrests, patrols used weapons and canines to chase down runaways, like today. Lawmakers even tried to reform them by passing regulations to control and limit slave patrols' use of force to 40 or 50 lashes instead of significantly more. In North Carolina, officials divided patrols into districts, permitting them to raid slave quarters to search for weapons and report their findings to the court. Raids and search warrants were not simply modern police practices. This was policing. All of this history started to shape my uninterrogated assumptions that we needed police to stop the bad guys. Because South Carolina and soon the country made resistance, rebellion, and running away illegal, black people were the bad guys. The difference between what's legal and illegal is not the behavior of the lawbreaker. It is the interests of the powerful people who create the law and have control of the police to enforce it.
Under slavery, lawmakers sent a message and patrols enforced it. If you run or try, you will be returned, punished, put to work, or put to death. Thus, flight from the plantations was forbidden and illegal, and yet many black people ran away, stole from their slavers, fought off catchers, created fraudulent identities, and for the ones who made it to free territories, lived as fugitives. Modern police, as it turned out, were not simply deviating from their jobs. They had centuries of influence that built habits of surveilling, monitoring, and capturing people, especially Black and Indigenous peoples who disproportionately suffer police arrests, killings, and imprisonment now. The Civil War provided more opportunities for many enslaved Black people to escape and find refuge in Union Army camps. The Confederate Army drafted patrols, overseers, and slave owners, decreasing the available labor supply for slave repression. With overseers and patrols in the military, new sources of patrol had to learn a balancing act. Use violence to keep unfree blacks in their place, but don't damage their bodies too much to devalue them. And harrowingly, when some slave owners went off to fight to preserve slavery, they expected their slaves to protect their white families on the plantation. Hatton explains that slave patrols were supposed to cease at the close of the Civil War, but some remained, and others morphed into or merged with police departments for southern cities. However, she suggests that the violent aspects were taken up by vigilante groups like the Ku Klux Klan. This is partially true. The Reconstruction era was a progressive time period entangled in democratic and anti-democratic practices to stop racial terror. In 1871, a Black Union loyalty club converted to a militia of free Black veterans who protected themselves from white violence and killed KKK members who had threatened them and burned a Black church. White mobs and the KKK were pro-power, not necessarily pro-police, and contested the power of black people who were elected to run local police departments and jails. Black cops who resisted were punished. But these vigilante groups also often shared membership with white police departments. During and following Reconstruction, police joined, supported, or refused to intervene in violence from the Klan and other racist vigilante mobs. Our Enemies in Blue, author Christian Williams explains that while there were some cops who genuinely tried to stop racist vigilante violence, arrests were unusual, prosecutions rare, and convictions almost unknown. Citing historian Melinda Hennessy, Williams offers accounts of police-led violence. In only three riots, including Mobile in 1867, Vicksburg in 1875, and Charleston in 1867, did the police or sheriff try to quell the disturbance, and in a third of the riots, the police or sheriff's posse led the violence. Thus, police racial violence did not stop when racist vigilantism began but rather new systems of control and criminalization emerged. 
Black law enforcement officials had limited to no power to control white people. Conversely, white cops did not need reasons to detain black people. But if they did, they had so many criminal ordinances at their disposal that they maintained the power to put black people in jail or back on plantations for punishment. Before the Civil War, Du Bois writes that prisons in the South were primarily filled with poor white men and white immigrants. But after, police, not the KKK, arrested so many black people that it completely changed the makeup of the prisons. More than a century later, protests would arise against law enforcement for still punishing black people for running away from them. In April 2015, during my first year in law school, white police officer Michael Slager stopped Walter Scott in North Charleston, South Carolina, due to a bad brake light. After exiting his car, Walter started to run. Nobody will ever know why he ran. Perhaps he was afraid of dying. He was pulled over at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement when seemingly each week a new police killing went viral and sparked protests. His family speculates Walter fled because despite having wonderful relationships with his children, he reportedly owed about $18,000 in child support and a family court had issued a warrant for his arrest. The family believes that he feared this traffic stop would lead to an arrest and that the cop would take him to jail due to this debt. At some point before Slager's stop, a judge had sent Walter to jail for two weeks for the outstanding child support payments. Walter had pleaded with the judge and argued that the court had already taken money from his check and sent it to the wrong person. The judge sent him to jail anyway. While he was locked up, he lost a job that he loved at a film company and his $35,000 salary. Additionally, the judge added to his arrest and incarceration record, further damaging Walter's ability to seek employment to provide for his children. This is why Mickey and I tried to stop employers from using blanket bans against people with criminal records in Kansas City. Walter was angry that the court made him lose, in his words, the best job I ever had. He withdrew from his family, turned to alcohol to cope with the suffering, and according to a news feature about his life, stopped caring about whether he lived another day. Hoping to change his circumstances, Walter had enrolled in a parenting program called Father to Father, and created a plan to pay back the outstanding child support balance, presumably including the debt that the court paid to the wrong person. To my shock when I read the story, Walter believed enough in his repayment plan and tried to do the right thing by turning himself in to the court in response to an arrest warrant for his debt. My grandfather was lucky that his wife and father got him out of jail over his outstanding child support payments, but he had to skip town for decades as a price. Here, Walter took himself to jail for a fresh start. The judge showed no mercy and sentenced him to five months. This whole time in jail, Walter explained, my child support is still going up. His good faith effort did not matter. 
The law did. First, he had to spend two weeks in jail, then five months in jail, and the entire time that his debt was still accruing, he was unable to earn a salary and provide for his children. South Carolina's history of policing is intimately tied to the state's denial of reparations to black and indigenous people for generations of unpaid labor, kidnapping, and land theft not to mention the decades of Jim Crow treatment, incarceration, and divestment in black communities. Half of the people who the state sterilized were black people in mental institutions and prisons, usually women, to stop them from reproducing inadequate offspring. Yet still, the state that permitted the sale and slavery of black children was charging poor black fathers for their freedom from jail. Police do not have to use racial profiling to accomplish this. Cops could choose from thousands of criminal laws that empower them to make arrests, including non-payment of child support. More than 10% of people sitting in cages in South Carolina's county facilities are there for child support back payments. Most are economically exploited black men who cannot afford a lawyer for their freedom and don't have their freedom long enough for steady employment. Like wardens who caught runaways under slavery, South Carolina's Department of Social Services usually collects a yearly fee from custodial parents to fund child support law enforcement costs for each case. And for punishment, Walter Scott had been sent to the jail in Charleston County, the offspring facility of the workhouse, where runaway slaves were held generations before. South Carolina's longest family-owned plantation is in North Charleston and was once held by slave owners who had immigrated from Barbados to the state in the 1680s. One owner, Richard Bohan Baker, kept track of his payments for the black people who ran away from his plantation. In some cases, Baker paid the local warden for the capture and correction of runaways. The warden obliged and sometimes incarcerated runaways at the workhouse. Like the men who escaped Baker's plantation, Walter, according to his family, ran to avoid going to jail. This time, however, in April 2015, Officer Slager did not make an arrest or take anyone to jail. He shot Walter several times in the back. A witness nearby recorded Slager walking toward Walter's body and dropping a taser. In the police report, Slager lied, writing that Walter had stolen his taser and run. He did not know that a witness would release the footage, hurling the cop into a firestorm of media frenzy. Walter, the victim, who had gone to jail over child support debt, was killed, and his children would never see him again. Slager, the police officer, was an expectant father at the time. North Charleston Police Department fired him while he was in jail, but continued to cover the health insurance for his pregnant wife until she delivered the baby. The mayor of North Charleston said that it was the humane thing to do. When Walter had been in jail, the state permitted his debt to accrue and benefited from his back payments. When Slager was arrested and put in jail, the city paid for the financial care and medical benefits of his family. More accurately, the city's taxpayers paid. 
North Charleston is 45% black. The police could not fix Walter's child support back payments no more than they could have fixed my grandfather's outstanding debts. If South Carolina, Tennessee, or any other state that benefited from slave labor actually paid reparations to the descendants of the people they exploited, perhaps child support would not exist. Walter needed resources, not jail. North Charleston could have provided resources, but instead they created a jobs program through police departments and prisons to manage the inequality, just as slavery provided jobs for overseers and patrols. The financial cost to police, prosecute, and imprison Walter several times likely exceeded the amount of his debt. The cost of his life is incalculable. Tragically, Walter's mother, Judy, was on the phone with him when he was murdered. They tasing me, were the last words she heard him say. She answered, just, just do whatever he say. You know North Charleston policemen, so just do whatever they say. Judy's fear for her 50-year-old son filled my heart with sadness and familiar agony. Her final talk with her son had been the talk. The one black parents rehearsed with their children to try to keep them alive during a stop by a cop. She knew and expressed what Walter knew. North Charleston policemen. She wasn't suggesting that Walter knew individual cops in the department or knew that he might encounter a bad one. To know police is to know piranhas. Whether or not you bear the bite, you know the species could possess violent command over your body, and if you wish or resolve to be safe, stay away from the trouble they cause. When the news of Walter's murder broke, members of Harvard's Black Law Students Association, BLSA, met in Wasserstein Hall on campus. We decided to wear all black with white name tags that read his name. One by one, we sat on the stairs in silence during the class transitions. The National Black Law Students Association asked all of the chapters to stand in solidarity with the Charleston School of Law and the University of South Carolina for three moments of remembrance, eight minutes each, to represent how many shots Michael Slager fired at Walter Scott. The activists who had been mobilizing to save a life or raise awareness to increase the calls for justice were fighting back contemporary police violence. And they were also providing me with a portal into our past, where policing has always been used to control Black, Indigenous, and immigrant labor, movement, and freedom. And through that portal into the history of policing, I was so grateful to find that there was first a history of freedom and resistance. Three, resistance and reform. Police reforms are such tyrannical prizes. Winning them feels relieving, never satisfying. Poet Nayara Wahid writes that, desire is the kind of thing that eats you and leaves you starving. Each indictment that a cop faced increased my craving for justice, and each non-indictment made me feel that due season would come one day. 
Many activists who demanded justice for Trayvon Martin carried the same demand into the movement against police violence. In 2013, the Black Lives Matter website listed several demands to end injustice in our community. Federal charges against George Zimmerman, no new jails, prisons, or immigration detention centers, and the reopening of the cases of all people whose lives had been stolen by law enforcement, security guards, and vigilantes. The following year, the website's creators, Patrice Cullors, Opal Tometi, and Alicia Garza, were adding to the calls to arrest Darren Wilson as justice for Michael Brown, and petitioning Attorney General Eric Holder to release all names of all officers involved in killing Black people within the last five years so they can be brought to justice. Though its meaning had been elusive in high school, I was coming around to the idea that justice for Michael Brown, Rakia Boyd, and Walter Scott, among others, clearly meant what we were chanting in the streets, indict, convict, send that killer cop to jail. The whole damn system is guilty as hell. We wanted to win. Cops expected to win, too, and the odds were in their favor. Many wore I Am Darren Wilson bracelets around St. Louis. In November 2014, I sat on my gray carpet in the big blue house and cried when a grand jury returned a bill of no indictment for the killing of Michael Brown. A grand jury also chose not to indict two cops who killed John Crawford, a black man who was holding an unloaded air rifle while on the phone inside a Walmart, nor Daniel Pantaleo, the cop who placed Eric Garner in a fatal chokehold for selling loose, untaxed cigarettes on Staten Island. Bystander Ramsey Orta captured the encounter and released the footage, showing Garner buckling and repeating, I can't breathe. NYPD officers wore black T-shirts with white writing that read, I can breathe. Mayors, governors, and the president asked us to remain calm and trust the system, the same system whose cops mocked the people they gunned down. Massive protests swept the country for each person, first for their death, then for the deaths of their cases. I hoped that all of our hard work, from the streets to the campuses, would pay off. I thought it had, briefly, in the first half of 2015. New York Police Department officer Peter Liang was indicted for killing Akai Gurley. On February 10, 2015, Liang had killed Gurley, a black man, in a dark hallway of the Brooklyn Projects. Liang opened a door and fired his weapon. A bullet ricocheted and hit Gurley, who was coming up the stairs with his girlfriend. Liang's indictment was the first of many high-profile killings since the Ferguson uprising began. But, unlike the white cops who evaded charges, Liang is Chinese-American. Many Chinese-Americans and immigrants varied in their reactions to the indictment. Some demanded his prosecution and joined multiracial protests that had signs with Black Lives Matter written in Chinese. 
Others conveyed that the indictment was racist and that he was a scapegoat for all of the other cops who walked free. In a double plot twist, Judge Danny Chan convicted Liang and sentenced him to probation and community service. Akai was killed and there would be no jail time. I think about this when people ask me of abolition. What about the killers? Liang's case demonstrated the limits of calling for cop convictions and the limits of diversity. Having more people of color in a corrupt system did not mean that they would be interested in changing it. Liang is Asian. He was prosecuted by Ken Thompson, the first black district attorney in Brooklyn. Liang was sentenced by Judge Chun, the first Korean-American prosecutor and first Korean-American judge in New York City. In 2019, Judge Chun did not sentence two NYPD cops, including one black one who had sex in a police van with a teenager in custody. Rather, the judge defended his decision by saying that the victim and the cops were involved in criminal activity and that the victim could also be charged and found guilty for offering a bribe. Later that year, the judge sentenced a black former NYPD cop to probation for shooting a man in the face and then planting a knife next to the body. If the criminal legal system only had white judges, prosecutors, and cops, then we could more easily assume the presence of racism or white supremacy. But with diversity, people of color can make the legal system appear more neutral or just by the virtue of them being firsts. We need firsts to do more than break the barriers to get into the system. We need them to break the system itself. I had not fully come to these conclusions about diversity by the time of the news of Freddie Gray's death. Two weeks after Walter Scott's death, Baltimore cops made eye contact with Freddie Gray. Gray, like Walter, ran. Nobody knows why. The official police report stated that Gray fled unprovoked, as if police do not regularly cause harm to poor black men like him and as if recent viral videos of police shooting and strangling black men to death did not provide enough provocation for them to flee. Cops chased and caught him, patted him down, and discovered a small switchblade. They dragged his folded body to a cage inside of a van. For 45 minutes, they drove through the city on a rough ride a law enforcement tactic of driving harshly to physically punish arrestees who run. In the process, those cops severed Gray's spine. He died days later, on April 19, 2015. Kevin Moore recorded the police dragging Gray, and once he released the footage, black people poured into the streets. Policymakers tout body cameras as a major reform in the wake of police violence, but civilian cop watch is much more powerful and democratic. When we stop to record police encounters, our presence can sometimes discourage further violence from cops. If we record cops who continue to escalate violence and get it on camera, then we are in control of the footage. This differs from body and dashboard camera footage because cops can turn them off or misconstrue the angle. 
Cities also withhold footage of cop shootings until a family, journalist, or lawyer sues or protests for access. At risk to themselves, the brave civilians who record cops informally on the streets or formally in community cop watch programs could literally save lives and expose additional police terror. I would learn more about the shortcomings of body cameras after the protests. Many activists and lawyers went to Baltimore to support the protesters who faced police in riot gear, just as they descended upon Ferguson. Justin Hansford, my friend from St. Louis, was there, providing legal support, too. After a few conversations with him about the need for more legal observers, I decided to go. Harvard's BLSA paid for me and three of my closest friends from law school, Emiri Mba, Christina Joseph, and Tita Lyo Rasaki, to drive from Cambridge to Baltimore to protest and provide legal support to activists. I woke up the next morning ready to go and quickly learned horrible news. My former classmate, Corey Hodges, had been killed in cold blood and possibly in front of her children. Her friend, Carica Bolden, was also discovered dead right beside her. Corey's father found them. The headline was so horrible that I called the news station and fought with them to change it. Accused Ferguson looter found dead two days after being charged. They kept it. Despite the fact that her death had nothing to do with the charges that she was facing, the news was eager to rely on the sensationalism of Ferguson and looting to attract readers to their site. Friends from my high school wanted justice for Corey. I did, too. They wanted to know why people protested police violence but didn't protest violence in our own black neighborhoods. I thought about the elder from the community meeting in Kansas City years before. I think he was warning us that many of the underlying causes of community-based violence and police violence were rooted in the same oppressive systems but required different kinds of solutions if we were going to stop the violence. These facts do not bring anyone's baby back from the dead, but we can use them to create better solutions in our communities to save more lives. I wished Corey's father could have found her oversleeping because her alarm failed to ring, instead of finding her lifeless. Between Corey and Freddie Gray, the drive down was deeply emotional for me. I found solace in being with my friends, reuniting with Justin, and meeting new activists in the streets. During the day, cops mounted horses, drove cars, and raided buildings in response to the protests. In Ferguson, the bulk of the protests happened on two major streets, West Florissant and North Florissant. But Baltimore's occupation was significantly larger and spread throughout the city. Tidalayo, Christina, Emiri, and I joined lawyers, law students, and legal workers in the National Lawyers Guild and a formation that became the Black Movement Law Project to monitor police. Several organizations trained us for cop watch, legal observation, bail and jail support. We connected with other law students from Howard University and Catholic University of America and lawyers who attended the National Lawyers Guild Legal Observer Training at the University of Maryland. 
I was shocked by the power and command of Black law students who organized the support networks behind the scenes, especially Marcus Banks. Marcus became part of the Black Movement Law Project. He was a bubbly, detail-oriented strategist and trainer during the uprising in Baltimore. When we worked together later in Ferguson, activists would run away from the police when they escalated violence. Marcus was one of the few people who would run toward the fires to help others. Because of courageous people like Marcus, I stopped praying to be fearless and started praying to be relentless. So that even when I am afraid, I try to move closer to freedom. During times of protests, I came to realize that government leaders invoke remarkably similar scripts. President Obama's script for the Baltimore uprising was almost as formulaic as his remarks surrounding the racial justice protests for Trayvon Martin. Send empathy to the family, affirm peaceful protest, spend more time criticizing protesters who react to police escalation of violence than the police. Remain neutral on the underlying violence. Encourage people to trust the system for justice. Noticeably to me, he did not say that Freddie Gray could have been his son. Gray was a young adult who fled the cops in the projects. The darker and presumably poorer Gray was not the soft, caramel-faced suburban teenager hunted down by a racist. Addressing the nation, the president listed six points. First, he offered condolences to Freddie Gray's family. Second, he offered sympathy solely to the police who were injured after kids threw rocks at them, even though Baltimore police had also thrown rocks at the kids. Third, he condemned the protesters who set fire to buildings and called them criminals and thugs, but never condemned the actual police officers who killed Freddie. Fourth, he affirmed peaceful protesters and condemned the ones who burned down a CVS. Fifth, he touted his task force on police, which was sought to build trust between police and black people. Politicians popularized the idea that police shootings led to a breakdown in trust between cops and black communities. Trust is not neutral. Freddie Gray probably ran because he trusted the police to be exactly what they have been for the entirety of their existence as an institution, violent. And finally, President Obama announced that the DOJ would give grants to local police departments to purchase body cameras. Yet the public already had video of Gray being dragged by cops and several uprisings were in direct response to footage of police killings. We did not need to see police kill people from the cops' point of view. We needed the killings to stop. Obama's speech was powerful motivation to re-examine my desire for popular police reforms that gave cops more power, money, and legitimacy. I should have known better from my time organizing against immigrant deportations. By the end of his presidency, he expanded the immigration law enforcement budget by 300 percent and expanded one federal program to deport undocumented immigrants from state and local custody by 3,600 percent. 
Immigration activists criticized Obama's widening of the deportation regime, and many activists against police violence started criticizing his increasing of resources for cops. And in the wake of the movements against police shootings, he proposed a $263 million investment over three years to help purchase 50,000 body-worn cameras to build trust between communities and local police departments. Since 2015, the Department of Justice distributed at least $70 million in grants to help cover the cost of the cameras. On top of funding police budgets more than any other department, city councils paid hundreds of thousands every year for equipment and data storage. Akin to the capitalists who were committed to developing destructive tools to protect profits from slavery, body and dashboard cameras were a gift to technology companies profiting from the police killings of black people. In 2012, executive leadership for Taser, the stun gun company, expressed that this was a win-win because it was a billion-dollar opportunity for the company and saved the police from paying out billions to civilians in misconduct lawsuits. People plead out when there is video. Taser rebranded the company's name to Axon and became the largest seller of police cameras. When the police kill a black person, the company's investment shares have surged as high as 25%. Beyond the profit incentives for companies, the public has very limited power to access the footage. The day after Baltimore police arrested Freddie Gray, the federal district attorneys had announced that they were investigating the Chicago police shooting of Laquan McDonald, who had been killed in October 2014. Thirty seconds after arriving on the scene, police officer Jason Van Dyke shot McDonald 16 times as he was walking away with a three-inch blade folded pocket knife. Eighty-six minutes were missing from the footage from a nearby Burger King, and the city was withholding the footage from the dashboard until a freelance journalist won a lawsuit demanding its release. The city agreed to pay McDonald's family $5 million in a settlement that prohibited the public release of the footage. BYP 100 and other coalitions in Chicago pinned the alleged year-long cover-up on the Chicago Police Department. Local prosecutor Anita Alvarez and Mayor Rahm Emanuel, President Obama's former chief of staff, activists successfully organized against Alvarez's re-election bid through a hashtag #BuyAnita campaign. Van Dyke resigned and was charged with murder and sentenced to six years and nine months in prison. The Chicago Police Department did not fire the three other cops who were on the scene until five years later. The Fraternal Order of the Police's vice president condemned Van Dyke's sentence and suggested that the more recent firing board had succumbed to the pressure of radical police haters. What good are body cam videos if the footage can be erased by the cops, covered up by the city, and denied to the public? They create another round of reforms for activists to demand and technology companies to create. Accessibility. Some police departments now offer live streaming. 
The loops of investments in the reform start repetitive cycles and the same number of people get killed. Even when body cameras could have theoretically served their purpose, I noticed that cops still get away with murder. Three months after Freddie Gray fled BPD, I felt some relief when University of Cincinnati police officer Ray Tensing was indicted for killing Sam DeBose. Tensing was wearing a body camera when he stopped DeBose for failing to display a front license plate. After asking for a driver's license, Tensing attempts to open DeBose's door and shoots him in the face when DeBose refuses and tries to close the door. The body camera captured the shooting at such close range that the city arranged barricades in the streets and blanketed windows with boards to prepare for the footage release. In a police report, Tensing claims to have been dragged, but his body camera showed that he was not and that the shot was fired before the car moved. My relief from the indictment did not last long. His first murder trial ended in a mistrial. The second trial ended in a mistrial, too. DuBose's family received a settlement near $5 million, and the University of Cincinnati agreed to pay for the education of 12 of his children. Ray Tensing successfully sued the university for more than $350,000. Back in Baltimore, Emiri, Christina, Titalayo, and I were in the hotel room preparing for legal observation and jail support that day. They rushed me out of the bathroom and toward the couch. Marilyn Mosby, the state district attorney, was on television making an announcement. She was going to charge the cops responsible for Freddie Gray's death. Another prize for the movement. Six, exactly. The four of us began weeping and hugging each other. Mosby, a black woman, instantly became a hero for those exhausted by traditional white male prosecutors who were usually explicitly complicit or lacked courage to do what she had done. Baltimore also had black city council members and a black woman mayor, so we also thought that might have made a difference. We thanked God for our punishment prizes and entered Baltimore streets full of pride. Protests scheduled for that day turned into celebratory parades, and after making several rounds for the festivities, we drove joyously back to law school to finish our final exams. We did not know that three Baltimore cops would eventually be acquitted, and another case would end in mistrial before Mosby dropped the remaining charges. They would be back at work a few months after that. The only people Mosby would ultimately send to jail were black protesters. In fact, all over the country, more black people went to jail for protesting police killings than police officers who killed black people. Putting all of our hope in the criminal legal system for convictions continued to let budding black lawyers like me down. Prosecutors rarely charge cops, and judges and juries rarely convict them. Many jurors are sold on the mainstream belief that cops put their lives on the line every day for our safety, when actually, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the jobs with the highest fatal work injuries include fishers and hunters, grounds maintenance workers, construction workers, roofers, and tradespeople like my father. Sometimes, as the prosecutors explained in Tenzing's case, 
Some jurors will never vote to convict a cop. Thousands of cops have killed more than 10,000 people between 2005 and 2017. Only 82 cops have been charged with murder or manslaughter. According to criminologist Phil Stinson, only 19 cops were convicted, and mostly on lesser charges. When the police do go to prison, judges sentence them less harshly than the rest of us. Liang didn't get any prison time at all. Even when activists and lawyers know that a conviction is unlikely, these facts cannot comfort a grieving family who wants something, anything, to atone for their involuntary sacrifice. I understand and completely sympathize with people who still want killer cops to go to prison. In a society where the options for killer cops seem like prison or nothing, prison and punishment feel like justice. But punishment is not justice. And I do not believe that we can secure justice for anyone killed by the police. Justice is a process where people decide and create the conditions that help us thrive, and it involves the people who are most impacted by those conditions. The dead cannot participate in this process. We can demand lots of outcomes for their deaths, punishment, revenge, relief, but not justice. When convictions do lead to cops entering prison, some people are excited because prisons are where we send poor, black, and disabled people to suffer. This justice is built upon maintaining this suffering for everyone else. Other angry mourners believe, as I once did, that prisons can deter cops from violence. That if we send cops who kill people like Freddie Gray and Michael Brown to prison, then it sends a message to other cops to think before they pull the trigger. However, there's one fatal flaw with this belief. The law protects the police's right not to think before they shoot. The Supreme Court opined in Graham v. Connor that cops are often forced to make split-second judgments in circumstances that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving, about the amount of force that is necessary in a particular situation. This means that police currently have the constitutional authority to quickly decide when to use force. If cops often make split-second decisions about whether to pull the trigger, I doubt that much of that split-second will be used for them to think, I probably should not pull this trigger. The last cop who did in this situation went to prison. According to the courts, cops don't have enough time to make that consideration and will be protected when they shoot first, consider later. Additionally, as I watched each trial and waited intently for prosecutors to deliver justice, I had never wondered whether the convictions would save more lives. With all of the indictments that activists encouraged, the data shows that the police still kill around a 1,000 people each year. If cops were not getting the message by now, then how many more people would have to die before they do? And for activists, I had to ask myself, do we want to have more convictions or do we want to save lives? After all of the trials ended for the Baltimore PD cops who killed Freddie Gray, I often wondered what should happen after cops kill someone. I believe that different communities could lead intentional and informed conversations about the possibilities because there is no singular answer. 
people can and should use their anger to rebel. Police officers must know that we will always resist the spectacular or mundane forms of violence that they inflict on our communities. Protests threaten the idea that police violence is reducible to a few bad apples. In response, cops work with lawmakers to pass state laws that criminalize protests, such as limiting how people can demonstrate and increasing the number of crimes that protesters can be charged with. One lawmaker proposed a bill that would bar activists from receiving student grants and loans if they are convicted of a crime related to a protest, rally, march, or other demonstration. The same bill also bars other forms of state aid, like food stamps and unemployment benefits. These measures attack students who are primary drivers of resistance movements, and also poor people who are forced to rely on assistance in the first place. Lawyers, activists, and anyone who cares about civil liberties must vehemently protect the right to protest. Organizers and people who care about justice must reject calls for peace and task forces and the other ways that people in power waste our time and energy until they announce some future reform that won't get us free, like more body cameras or community relations boards. Instead, activists can call for cops to be fired and never allowed to work in public or private law enforcement. We need an expansion of cop watch programs as police departments shrink. There must be radical and beautiful trauma and healing responses for those neighborhoods and families who experience the killing. People organizing in that community should work to come up with a range of responses to all violence, which are more than prison or nothing. Most importantly, we need democratic, multiracial movements against the carceral state but more broadly, against a society that uses police and prisons to manage black rebellion, oppressed people, and social inequality. Once I finished with my final exams that spring, I returned to studying books about slavery. Frederick Douglass's autobiography quickly became one of my favorite texts ever. Throughout my life, teachers always presented him as an incredible orator and abolitionist, they never once taught me that he fought a slave owner and won. Before he escaped, his owner sent him to a slaver breaker, Edward Covey, a poor white Methodist minister who could not afford his own plantation, but gained a reputation for beating slaves to set them straight. For a year, he beat and whipped Douglas nearly every day. Once, while he was feeding the horses, Covey entered the stables with a whip. Douglas decided to fight back, resisting bondage by grabbing Covey's throat and kicking him and another man who tried to intervene in the ribs. The brawl lasted for almost two hours until Covey, bleeding, withdrew. He never hit Douglas again. In fact, Douglas wrote that nobody ever whipped him again, though he had many fights with white men who tried. This battle with Mr. Covey was the turning point in my career as a slave. A slave only can understand the deep satisfaction which I experienced, who has himself repelled by force the bloody arm of slavery. I felt as I never felt before. It was a glorious resurrection from the tomb of slavery to the heaven of freedom. 
My long-crushed spirit rose, cowardice departed, bold defiance took its place. And I now resolved that, however long I might remain a slave in form, the day had passed forever when I could be a slave in fact. I did not hesitate to let it be known of me that the white man who expected to succeed in whipping must also succeed in killing me. Douglas's resistance was illegal and even violent, but that's what it took for his survival and freedom. While beatings on plantations were normal, routine, and regular, his writing demonstrated that slavery's violence was possible because of the fact of the plantation, not because black people were misbehaving. To stop the legal whippings, beatings, kidnapping, sale, and sexual violence committed by slave owners, slavery, the root cause, had to be abolished. Douglas explained, It was slavery, not its mere incidents, that I hated. Slavery as a system was wrong, not just the harms that it created. He further challenged my ideas on police reform. Was it mere incidents of policing that I hated? The shootings, chokeholds, and arrests? Or was it the institution and what it was designed to do? Full of ideas and new knowledge, I anxiously flew back to St. Louis in summer 2015 for my job at the Advancement Project. AP is a social justice organization that uses movement lawyering, organizing, and media communications for social change. I worked with an AP lawyer in two formations. One was the Don't Shoot Coalition to organize the one-year anniversary events for Michael Brown, Von Derrett Myers Jr., and the Ferguson Uprising. The second was another group for legal and policy research around police violence and accountability. Jason Flannery, an off-duty cop working a second job as an armed security guard, had shot Myers. Witnesses report that Flannery did not announce himself as a cop as he chased Myers down a dark alley and allegedly shot him at least eight times, including six times from behind. Contrary to police accounts that the teen shot first, Myers' family says he only had a sandwich in his hand. His lawyer believed that cops planted a gun near the scene. Protesters rebelled and burned American flags in response to the non-indictment that summer, and the police continued to respond with militaristic force. The protests, marches, rallies, and festivals that the Don't Shoot Coalition planned were incredible. Thousands of people participated in dancing, artistic actions, block parties, and theater performances between St. Louis City and North St. Louis County. Several activists who protested in the Ferguson Uprising in 2014 returned to support the celebration and ongoing resistance efforts. By late summer 2015, activists were still occupying parts of Ferguson to protest police violence, making St. Louis a site for one of the longest continually held demonstrations in the history of the United States. Rivaling the 381-day-long Montgomery bus boycott that started in 1955, 
A group of protesters called the Lost Voices took over a section of a parking lot in Ferguson and lived in tents for several months, demanding prison for Darren Wilson and justice for Michael Brown. Before Wilson's non-indictment several months earlier, one member, Dasha Jones, explained, He's on suspended leave with pay. He's getting paid right now. They could not even fire him. So do you really think we're going to get an indictment? No. In 2015, Lost Voices and organizations like Hands Up United were providing youth programming and mutual aid in St. Louis County. Hands Up launched an after-school technology class and a books and breakfast program, inspiring several organizers to start their own, too. Lawyers, activists, and clergy spent weeks preparing for new rounds of police terror that we expected to take place during the anniversary events. The national spotlight was on the Ferguson Police Department, but everyone locally knew that police were problematic in the entire area. The Department of Justice investigated the Ferguson Police Department in 2014, but police officers from more than 50 law enforcement agencies descended upon protesters in Ferguson during the demonstrations, including the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department, the St. Louis County Police Department, and the Missouri Highway Patrol. Missouri Governor Jay Nixon issued an executive order to unify their command during subsequent states of emergency, specifically granting the St. Louis County Police Department command and control over Ferguson for protests and acts of civil disobedience. By the time I returned for the anniversary in 2015, Local police condemned the DOJ investigation's report that found widespread practices of racism and classism just three months earlier. The report largely attributed the police practices to a lack of relationships and touted community policing as a cure. Much like indictments, community policing and increasing diversity are popular responses to police violence that do not reduce police violence. Mere community knowledge and diversity cannot prevent violence in a system that is inherently violent. Plantations were diverse, and overseers knew the black people they policed, and the violence continued because there was a fundamental imbalance of power, resources, and status between the two. This is true for cops. I was witnessing the DOJ tout community policing and diversity in Ferguson to increase the benevolence of individual cops instead of reducing their power to be violent. The End of Policing author and sociologist Alex Vitali explains that a kinder, gentler, and more diverse war on the poor is still a war on the poor. A force with officers who looked like Michael Brown could continue to do the bidding of white property owners nearby. Perhaps the new recruits would not shoot down another black teenager for jaywalking. They might politely ask him to walk in single file on the sidewalk with his friend or offer him a ride home. Many of us would celebrate that kindness because it's how we think cops are supposed to behave. We'd ignore that, at any point, those cops still have the power to inflict the same violence as Darren Wilson did. We just hope that they won't use it. We would also forget the underlying problems of that encounter. 
the criminalization of jaywalking that gives cops power to stop people, the sidewalks that are too narrow for poor pedestrians to walk alongside each other, and the segregation in Ferguson that concentrates poor black people into the apartment complexes where Michael's grandmother lived. On August 9, 2015, exactly one year after Michael Brown was killed, I was attending a Ferguson is Everywhere benefit concert featuring rappers Tef Poe, Talib Kweli, and Bun B. I was there with Justin Hansford and Niall Fort. I had met Niall a few days earlier at a protest in front of the police department. He was a minister and activist who was starting a doctoral program at Princeton later that summer. He had come to St. Louis the year before on a bus ride that his friend, writer Darnell Moore, had planned to support the Ferguson Uprising. Darnell helped orchestrate the constellation of people who created freedom rides to Ferguson from all over the country. On the way back to their home cities from Ferguson, many people on the bus ride started the first Black Lives Matter chapters. Niall had met Tefpo, a founder of Hands Up United in Ferguson. Fort was inspired and launched a books and breakfast program with several others in a group called The Maroon Project when he returned to Newark, New Jersey. Before we all met in person, Darnell, Niall, and I had all contributed to the same issue of the Harvard Journal of African American Public Policy in 2013. I wrote about disparate impact discrimination from my research with Mickey. Niall had written about ending mass incarceration. For many intellectuals and activists, prison abolition is not only progressive, it is also practical. For many others, prison abolition is too extreme and not realistic. No matter where one stands on the issue, one must confront certain historical facts. At the height of American slavery, abolition was viewed more as a fantasy than a policy. So deeply embedded in the fabric of American society, chattel slavery was considered both normal and natural, while abolition was viewed as extreme and unrealistic. However, if history has revealed anything at all, it is that normal is not always moral and unrealistic is not always unattainable. As radical as prison abolition may seem to some, centuries from now, citizens of this country may laugh at how astonishingly normalized and immoral the American prison system once was. Years later, I asked Niall whether he had also believed in police abolition at the time of the article. He wasn't sure. When he wrote it, mass incarceration dominated the criminal justice reform conversation. He had learned about prison abolition in seminary after political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal called into Niles's class and delivered a lecture. Before then, Niall remembered being explicitly against police practices including stop-and-frisk and racial profiling, like the rest of us. Yet his ideas about police abolition as part of prison-industrial complex abolition were unexamined until the Ferguson Uprising, like mine. Our political ideas about how to change the world were not linear because we were always learning and unlearning the history, purpose, and functions of various systems of oppression. 
Or as Niles simply put it, a person's political journey is dynamic as the social justice movement itself. At the concert, the crowd, once lively and joyous, grew thick and enraged. Taff announced on stage that the police had just killed someone in Ferguson. Niall and I ran to Justin's car with Marbury's stolly butts. Marbury was a lawyer with the Center for Popular Democracy. She and I would reconnect again later as the founding members of Law for Black Lives. When we arrived in Ferguson, tanks were already moving on a growing crowd on West Florissant. A black woman started shouting, Take out your contacts! They are about to start shooting at us! She's been through this so many times that she already knows when they are going to tear gas before they announce it. Others echoed her commands. The crowd was emotional and angry. Montague Simmons, longtime St. Louis organizer and executive director of the Organization for Black Struggle, OBS, at the time, was calling for us to link arms and face the tanks. One woman started shouting and screaming and walking toward the line of cops in armor, asking why they kept killing us. I instinctively ran to her and wrapped my arms around her. She burst into tears. Standing in the middle of the road, I embarrassingly expected some change from the cops in the year that I'd gone off to law school, especially since the police's previous militaristic display had become an international embarrassment to the country. Additionally, Arch City Defenders, an advancement project, had successfully sued the police to stop tear gassing and shooting rubber bullets indiscriminately during protests. This lawsuit was a major win toward constitutional policing. The court required the police to broadcast a warning before dispersing the crowd with chemical agents and rubber bullets. Here's how the police complied. Niall, Justin, and I hurried to a gas station nearby to purchase milk in case the woman was right about the tear gas. We knew to purchase milk because Palestinians living in the militarized occupied territories in Gaza and the West Bank had been tweeting survival tips to us from their own protests against Israel's military forces. Upon our return, cops inside the tanks advanced with the dispersal order. I don't remember what they said, but as soon as they said it, they started shooting the tear gas canisters. Niall and I ran toward the crowd and mistakenly into the poisonous cloud to pass out the milk. We first had to pour it on each other's faces to soothe our own choking, gagging, and coughing. Everything was burning. The litigation to make the police warn us did not stop their reckless behavior that night. If that was supposed to be constitutional policing, then it hurt just as badly as the so-called unconstitutional policing. Hours later, when I made it home, a thin film of the gas and milk covered my skin and locks. My eyes watered uncontrollably, and tears burned my cheeks when they fell. I could not believe that protesters inhaled these fumes every night. I never wanted to experience anything like this again. The next day, interfaith clergy activists staged acts of civil disobedience against the police department in downtown St. Louis. Dr. Cornell West joined dozens of other protesters as they sat on the ground and edged forward about six inches at a time toward the building. 
Like my time in Baltimore, I was there as a legal observer to monitor police behavior. They were threatening to arrest the ministers and people of faith. Legal observers are usually permitted to walk around freely and gather information about the protesters, cops on duty, and any potential for escalation and de-escalation. There was one other legal observer, a tall and skinny white person who was doing the same thing that I was, recording the police who stood in a line facing the crowd of onlookers. Cops started yelling at me to leave, not the white person. But I'm a legal observer. I can be here, I answered back. The other legal observer continued to walk closer and closer toward the police without incident. To my surprise, a high-ranking cop walked from the back and threatened to arrest me if I did not leave. I turned my back to comply with this demand and began walking to exit the police line. Suddenly, a cop, a black man, walked behind me and yanked my arm so hard that I instantly buckled. He had physically assaulted me for no reason. I stood up and started yelling, Why did you just hurt me? I was leaving. You saw me leaving. You're a coward. Fucking coward. He just smirked. I started walking back toward him when lawyer and law professor Brendan Rodiger came and grabbed me to calm me down. He just kept saying, you can't go to jail right now. I can't let you go to jail right now. Brendan probably saved me from God knows what. If that cop was bold enough to assault me in front of hundreds of people, I cannot even imagine what he would have done if we were alone. My arm throbbed for a week because pain doesn't appreciate diversity. I had not felt any less of it because the cop was black. Writing for the New York Times in 1967, James Baldwin explained, If you must call a cop, we said in those days, for God's sake, make sure it's a white one. We did not feel that the cops were protecting us, but we knew too much about the reasons for the kinds of crimes committed in the ghetto. But we feared black cops even more than white cops, because the black cop had to work so much harder, on your head, to prove to himself and his colleagues that he was not like all the other niggers. There, I have been the other nigger. Research shows that employing black cops can actually increase police violence against people of color, and the diverse police departments in Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, Oakland, Detroit, Los Angeles, New Orleans, and San Juan had not prevented the police's acts of assault, torture, and murder of people of color in those cities. A week later, I found myself protesting, resisting, and calling for justice for yet another police killing in St. Louis. Kayla Reed, a field organizer with the OBS, Tef Poe, and I, were in front of the St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office with the family of Kajim Powell. Exactly one year earlier, two St. Louis police officers shot and killed Kajim as he paced back and forth holding a small knife. The police chief said that he quickly advanced toward the officers with his hand raised above his head as if he was going to attack them. In a video captured by witnesses, Powell did no such thing. Clearly experiencing a mental health crisis, he walked toward them slowly, telling them to shoot him. They fired 12 times. The entire encounter lasted 30 seconds. 
He was killed about a week after Michael Brown, and the three of us were there a year later demanding that the district attorney charge the police. While I was on the stairs, I saw a friend from high school who had become a cop and asked him why. He shrugged his shoulders and mouthed, I don't know. I didn't know what else to do after school. He was on a line of cops who were blocking us from entering the courthouse. A few of them started running to their cars. Teff and I overheard on a cop's radio that there was a police shooting at a location in West St. Louis. Protesters started running to our cars, too, to beat them there. After 18-year-old Mansoor Ball Bay clocked off his UPS job and went to his aunt's house, cops and federal agents raided the home. Ball Bay ran and was shot in the back. Cops said he shot at them first. The family and witnesses said that he did not have a gun. When I arrived at Walton and Page with a car full of activists, a crowd was growing and demanding answers from the cops about the shooting. Brittany Packnett was there. We had both attended Westside Missionary Baptist Church when I was in high school, and we were standing in front of the building when the pastor, Reverend Dr. Ronald Bobo, walked over. He was stunned that cops not only couldn't constrain themselves during the anniversary of Michael Brown's killing, but were also actively killing more people. Police tanks and squad cars started speeding down the block toward us, forming a horizontal roadblock the entire width of the street, from sidewalk to sidewalk. Behind us, more cop cars sped down Page, sandwiching protesters in the middle. Without warning or provocation, the police suddenly started shooting canisters that contained different chemical agents into the crowd. One of the agents did not have the smoke and gas that I experienced the week before, but it caused us to start sneezing excessively. One military guide explains that invisible tear gas cannot be seen by rioters once it first emerges from a grenade or mechanical dispenser, and therefore produces a greater psychological panic-producing effect than tear smoke. It was unbearable. I jumped inside the car because the cops turned the scene into chaos. Shooters in the tanks fired rubber bullets and canisters directly at people and cars, including the one that I was in. Block by block, the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department catapulted cocktails of chemical agents against the entire Fountain Park neighborhood for hours. Police attacked residents sitting on their porches. They gassed parkgoers, completely unaware of the gathering. Clouds of smoke from the regular tear gas hindered visibility for people who ran and drove. Several school bus drivers panicked and dropped kids off at incorrect stops. I took pictures of some blasted tear gas canisters and uploaded them on Facebook. They were the most toxic kind, C.S., that causes vomiting, skin burning, immediate closure of the eyes, and heightened sensitivity from repetitive exposure. A veteran online told me that it could melt contacts in your eyes. By nightfall, the police were still reigning terror, and the protesters gathered in the area were emboldened to fight back. They threw sticks and rocks. I saw a few set a car on fire. The car that I was in was being followed by white vans for about an hour. 
The vans were the same ones next to the police tanks in a picture that an activist posted online. I was in the car with two Ferguson activists and feared what might have happened if we were isolated and captured. Earlier that summer, a cop in Texas had stopped Sandra Bland for allegedly failing to use a turn signal as she drove to start her new job at an HBCU, Prairie View A&M. He took her to jail. Three days later, Bland was found dead in her cell. Her family outright denied the possibility of suicide and maintained that the jail was trying to cover up her murder. Bland's life and death catalyzed the hashtag Say Her Name movement to highlight black women who died in police custody. So when I realized that we were being followed, I wrote online what other black activists wrote when we entered the streets. If something happens, I was not violent. I did not commit suicide. That evening, the police held a press conference and stated that the cops were responding to attacks initiated by the protesters. It was a complete lie. Kayla and I organized a door-knocking campaign to interview residents about the neighborhood tear gas shooting spree. After I took legal declarations from community members on the events, OBS, Advancement Project, and the National Lawyers Guild held a police brutality clinic at West Side, where the rampage had begun. We wanted to create space for community members to process what happened and learn about potential civil suits against the police departments. Brendan spoke, as well as my supervisor from the Advancement Project, Denise Lieberman. Thomas Harvey, one of the founders of Arch City Defenders, discussed legal options. He had gathered declarations from me and Niall about a week earlier because the police had tear-gassed us in violation of the dispersal order that Arch City won in court. I facilitated the clinic and realized that most of the residents who came really just wanted a place to talk about what happened to them. Some community members explicitly wanted police demilitarization. Most wanted the cops to completely leave them alone. Everyone agreed that the violence had to stop. Resistance to police violence, systemic racism, and colonization were booming across the world by the time I returned to law school in 2015. That fall, the International Fellowship of Reconciliation, an interfaith organization dedicated to nonviolence, awarded me and Niall a fellowship to discuss police violence in the Netherlands and Belgium. I had no idea how much I would learn about police and colonialism. We lectured and attended community-based teach-ins two or three times a day. In the evenings, we broke bread and held storytelling nights with activists, artists, and academics. We even met with law enforcement officials who greeted us with stroop waffles. At one meeting in Amsterdam, a police chief assured us that what happened in Ferguson would have never happened in their country because their police do not racially profile. A police captain of Curaçao descent mostly echoed this sentiment and explained that when people of African or Caribbean descent held protests, the police department sends a captain to the protest who shares the ethnic backgrounds of the dissidents. I found this ironic 
since this is exactly what had happened in Ferguson. The department hired and sent a high-ranking black cop to manage protests, but he still had no power over the command that attacked us those nights. Additionally, I realized that by sending black captains, departments were using the colonial tactic of installing a member of the colonized group to diffuse dissent among the colonized. They would receive our grievances, but could not disrupt the unequal treatment, just like the black school cops who'd comfort students on the way to detention. I could not believe how many stroop waffles I ate. I also could not believe the Dutch cops' assertion that anti-blackness and racial profiling were American problems. Mitchell Isaias, an activist from the New Urban Collective based in Amsterdam, sent me reading materials on the histories of colonialism and racism in the country. The Dutch had maintained a slave trade in the Caribbean Ocean, including on the currently colonized islands that became Curaçao and Aruba. Inhabitants of those islands are Dutch citizens, like Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. Mitchell included literature on Zwarte Piet, a mythical black-faced creature that black Dutch have been organizing to have removed from national celebrations. Mitchell connected the character to the treatment that black people received from the cops. He explained that resistance groups like Nederland Vort Better Stop Blackface and Zwarte Piet Neat, organized protest and freedom rides against racial injustice. In 2014, the police had violently arrested activists, including children. Jeffrey Afrie, one of the kick-out Zwarte Piet organizers, arrested in 2014, had been arrested before in 2011 for wearing a T-shirt that read, Zwarte is racism and again in 2016 for a freedom ride to Rotterdam, a city that had decided to ban protests altogether. Anti-black racism is obviously not a problem unique to the U.S., and neither were other forms of marginalization. Between our meetings, lectures, and dinners, we take the tram. At each platform, volunteers held signs welcoming refugees without documentation, I've been reading about the Syrian civil war that forced people to flee to Europe. In 2015, the Netherlands recorded almost 19,000 asylum requests from Syrians, out of a total of 44,000. We met with a group of teenagers and young adults who were immigrants or children of immigrants from North Africa and Syria. Some were undocumented. The group explained that they faced immense police surveillance and violence, and that Europe's heightened xenophobia and Islamophobia made them and their families susceptible to street violence from white Europeans. Police in the Netherlands were carrying out the will of the government and the white Dutch, protection for their borders from the brown people crossing over. The Dutch passed significant measures to exclude undocumented migrants from health care and the economic sectors. Border patrol was a global phenomenon. I was not in Kansas anymore. Historically, Belgium, the Netherlands, and France heavily recruited and coerced Africans to fight in their wars and labor in their cities. 
Between World War I and the 1970s, millions of Africans went to these countries as a result. By the economic recession in the 1970s, many European nations started closing their borders to the black and brown immigrants whose labor they had been exploiting for decades. Thus, people from the Middle East and Africa fleeing violence, persecution, or economic devastation as a result of Western imperialism have increasingly resorted to asylum-seeking as a route to immigration. Police have been subsequently tasked with managing the rising right-wing Islamophobic and xenophobic criticisms that the immigrants would drain the resources of European nations. The fallout has been most acutely felt among contemporary refugees and laborers fleeing climate catastrophe and war in Syria and political instability in North Africa. The Netherlands increased police power to question and apprehend people they suspect to be undocumented, akin to Arizona's SB 1070 racial profiling law that I had protested against in college. Moroccan youth are less than 2% of the population, yet Dutch police have charged more than half of them with one or more criminal offenses by the time they are 23 years old. The racial justice struggles in the Netherlands and Belgium surprised me. After high-profile police killings, some activists and policymakers would suggest that the U.S. should look to Europe for police reform because cops there rarely kill people. For example, in 2019, cops in the U.S. killed civilians at a rate more than 16 times higher than cops in the Netherlands and killed over a thousand more people than their Dutch counterparts. The low numbers abroad are a testament that the U.S. could have significantly fewer cop killings if we committed to have fewer guns, fewer cops, and lower inequality. But fewer shootings did not necessarily mean good policing, as explained by the black, Syrian, and Moroccan people we met during the trip. The violence just manifested differently. Adopting police reforms from other countries could be a start to save some lives, but cities could run the risk of adopting other problems. Instead of slavery, police across the globe were often birthed under other oppressive systems, like monarchies and colonialism. In the Northeast United States, the modern police force drew heavily from Britain's patrols, which were developed through the colonization of Ireland. Britain colonized India and established a police force in the 1860s, modeling it after the Commonwealth's colonial paramilitary police during its occupation of the Irish. Canada's and Australia's police departments were also rooted in British colonization and the forced genocide of indigenous peoples. Indonesia's police force developed under Dutch occupation. The Japanese maintained the Dutch's model when it took over Indonesia and established their colonizing police force. Mexico's oldest police forces were derivative of Spain's Guardia Civil. The police force in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil was modernized under Portuguese colonization in the early 1800s to prevent slave uprisings after modern-day Haiti. 
The first national police force in Nigeria was established in 1930 by the British colonial government to stifle dissent against colonial rule. Nigeria has maintained the basic structure of the police even after they gained independence in 1960. Policing is a settler colonial creation to control native populations and is exported abroad to teach other empires how to do the same. Simply pointing to Europe as a bastion of possible reforms is insufficient to change the institution. Police in Europe were still managing inequality, labor, race, immigration, and borders. Cops provided temporary protection to some immigrants from white people when the government and capitalists benefited from exploiting Turkish and North African laborers. But when their labor was no longer needed after the war, cops apprehended, expelled, and banned their descendants. The United States should absolutely aspire to Europe's relatively low arrest and incarceration rates, but by undoing racism, classism, ableism, and xenophobia, not by concentrating it. Protests were happening globally. While still in Amsterdam, I learned about students in South Africa who were conducting sit-ins and marches against national tuition fee increases. We discussed their protests at a conference that concluded our delegation called Decolonizing the University, held at the University of Amsterdam. U of A students were also protesting tuition raises, anti-blackness, and xenophobic behavior and policy in the region. They held a student occupation for months and supported each other through mutual aid while they crafted their demands. Nile, Adam Elliott Cooper, and I, along with other participants at the conference, took a picture of solidarity to send to the movement happening in the motherland. Adam was one of the most brilliant people that I had ever heard present. He was an organizer and doctoral student in geography at University of Oxford. At first, my very African-American Midwestern self, who had only been out of the country once before, was obviously obsessed by a black person with a British accent. But once I'd gotten over that, I absorbed his analysis on policing, class, and the Caribbean. He introduced me to the works of black scholars like Paul Gilroy and Stuart Hall, who increased my understanding of empire, African diasporic culture, and class exploitation. When Adam Mitchell and the other students spoke about decolonization, I felt as if they were speaking another language, full of possibility and struggle. Both were descendants of Caribbean parents and lived in countries that maintained colonies, so their relationship to colonialism felt fresher than mine. But if students in the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, and South Africa were in solidarity in using a decolonization framework to confront class, policing, and anti-blackness, then I definitely wanted to be in a global struggle with them too. When I left Amsterdam in October 2015, I dreamed of going to South Africa to learn about their student movement. I knew it was a risk. I was still having nightmares from being tear-gassed, assaulted, and shot at from the previous summers. And even though South Africa was much farther away from Cambridge than St. Louis, I did not expect that the police violence would be so familiar to what I experienced at home.
This would be my very first time traveling abroad alone. I had only traveled out of the country for the first time earlier that year. Juice and I received our passports at the same time. I had traveled a bit throughout the U.S. because of high school camps and college conferences, rarely for leisure. However, Harvard provided resources and a network to enable different kinds of travel. Earlier that year in March, I had attended a BLSA cultural trip to Mozambique in South Africa. In Maputo, at our first hotel, the front page of the Capitol's newspaper featured a headline about Ferguson and a picture of a military tank. In October, I went to Dubai, the Netherlands, and Belgium. By November, I was in Paris with Juice and Grandin when suicide bombers and gunmen killed 130 people at restaurants, a stadium, and a theater, including La Petite Cambodge, where I had almost dined at the recommendation of my friend Keaton. She encouraged me to go to South Africa, even though I was afraid from all that I experienced through the protests, shootings, and now bombings, the student protests eventually brought me over. Before I left town, Keaton and I joined students who were organizing under Royale Must Fall, a decolonization campaign to retire the Harvard Law School shield, which bore the crest of the slave owner whose bequest founded the school. The initial group of students were from South Africa or had also just returned from studying abroad there. We all discussed how much we were impacted by the roads must fall and fees must fall, decolonization movements, and our movement grew to a diverse coalition of U.S. and international students who demanded that Harvard remove the shield. A legal historian who wrote a book about Harvard's history rejected the idea, stating, I understand why the students are upset, but this is just a fact of the school. If we started renaming things and taking down monuments of people linked to slavery, you would start with Washington. You don't want to hide your history. A great institution can tell the truth about itself. His fear was precisely a goal of decolonization, to remove the symbolic, political, and cultural manifestations of the people who destroyed indigenous symbols, cultures, lands, and peoples. We did not need to start with George Washington. People who are committed to decolonization should organize to remove these legacies where they are. For activist Bree Newsom, it was physically removing the Confederate flags that flew over South Carolina State Capitol. We did not want to hide our history. We wanted to reclaim what was underneath it and decolonize our present. Symbols were a start, but as I would soon realize, institutions needed to go too like police. During our campaign against the Shield, my friend and fellow activist, Rena Karifa Johnson, called me early one November morning to tell me that someone had committed a hate crime at Wasserstein Hall. They had used black tape to cover the portraits of black professors in the hallway. Student activists had been agitating for months for responses from the university around police violence, racism on campus, faculty diversity, the curriculum, and now the shield. And we faced constant backlash. The black tape incident was a tipping point for a lot of students who were not involved in any activism. One group, 
led by two black students, walked into the dean's classroom while she was teaching and requested that she end her class to host a community meeting. At the meeting, black students, staff, and faculty poured out tons of racist experiences that we had had on campus and in the world. There were lots of tears, frustration, and anger in the packed room. I think the dean was trying to speak in good faith about the moment that we were in and had probably been caught off guard by the incident. Some of my white classmates, in the deepest sincerity, hugged me and told me to hang in there. Some women on the faculty did the compassionate head tilt, using their right hand to caress my shoulder and elbow to reassure me that things will get better one day. Two cried. I did not want them to feel sympathy for me. I wanted them to know that racial violence was bad for them, too. An ally sympathizes. I wanted less sympathy and more commitment, risk, and sacrifice to eradicate white supremacy. A classmate had a relationship with Melissa Harris-Perry, and MSNBC reached out to me through her to attend the show. I had helped Niall with his talking points for his slot on the show earlier that year, reminding him to emphasize that our movement was not anti-police, but anti-police brutality. He had said it, but teased me years later because we'd eventually evolved enough in our politics to become against the institution of policing. We were condemning the idea that activists hated individual cops, and our thinking had developed into condemning the system of policing as a vestige of slavery, colonialism, and capitalism. When I went on Melissa Harris-Perry, I blamed legal education for not preparing future lawyers with a racial justice analysis, suggesting that if they had one, they would learn to send cops to prison in their roles as prosecutors and judges. I would come to significantly disagree with myself later on this point. Growth requires us to constantly evaluate the ideas we hold dear. By December, I was packing my bags to spend a month traveling between two cities in South Africa, Johannesburg and Cape Town. I had applied for a $1,000 research grant to learn about the active decolonial student movements and write comparatively about the protest infrastructures in South Africa and the U.S. I arrived late on December 31st because that's when flights were cheapest. Police at the airport demanded a tip because they had walked me to a woman cab driver, reassuring me that I was definitely going to be safe because she is a lady. I watched the clock strike midnight in the back of her cab. I told her, Happy New Year. She did not even say it back right away because I said it too fast and too excitedly. Then she called a friend and started speaking in Zulu with so much cheer that I wanted to know to be even the person on the other end of the phone. We became lost trying to find Justin Hansford's apartment at Witwatersrand University. I felt lucky that he was there on a Fulbright scholarship studying Nelson Mandela because he'd built relationships with many students and faculty who belonged to the Fees Must Fall movement. But we could not find him that night, and my chances dimmed each time I reduced the brightness on my phone to preserve the battery. I didn't have service, 
She dropped me off at a hotel on a strip filled with parties and negotiated the $30 room rate to make sure that I was safe. The next day, Justin and I found each other and he took me to Soweto. I visited Nelson Mandela's home and spent hours at a museum dedicated to the Soweto student uprisings in 1976. The white apartheid government passed a law that required black South African children to be taught in Afrikaans, a language forged through white Dutch colonial settlements and the enslavement of Africans and South Asians. Along with this law, black students were mostly restricted to a Bantu education, how to be a good African servant in a white home and a white-dominated country. Two teachers were fired because they refused to teach in Afrikaans. Students went on strike to protest the firings and the law requiring the educational program. Protesting was illegal. Students did it anyway. I discovered many parallels between the protests and the government's response to the resistance. Students rebelled for two months, and in the pictures on the museum walls, their hands were up, showing that they were unarmed, like we had been doing back in Ferguson. In Soweto, students threw rocks at the cops, like the students in Baltimore, except the South African students were being fired upon with real bullets, the apartheid government claimed that some activists who died in police custody had committed suicide to no fault of the police, just like Texas officials declared about Sandra Bland. Their signs read, Don't shoot and free our brothers and sisters, like ours did in St. Louis, Boston, Baltimore, and New York City. Signs also read, Afrikaans must be abolished. Cops used tear gas, rubber bullets, and real bullets. Over 600 blacks, some as young as seven, were murdered by police during uprisings. One photograph of the uprising had gone viral long before the Internet. Photojournalist Sam Nzima had captured Mboisa Makubu, carrying the body of Hector Peterson, a 13-year-old casualty of police violence on June 16, 1976. Enzima explained, I saw a child fall down under a shower of bullets. I rushed forward and went for the picture. It had been a peaceful march. The children were told to disperse. They started singing in Kosi, Sijalel. The police were ordered to shoot. Cops claimed that a bullet ricocheted off of the ground and struck Hector. An autopsy revealed that the boy was hit directly. Students retaliated against the police and Enzima photographed what happened next. The students got hold of one policeman and they put him down on the ground and they slaughtered him like a goat. They set him on fire. He was burnt beyond recognition. Police forced the photographer to resign from his post at the newspaper for capturing the photos and planned to kill him on sight. He fled, only for the police to find him, put him on house arrest, and raid and destroy his equipment months later. The police shut down the entire news organization he worked for, the only national black paper in South Africa at the time. The police that had opened fire on the school children were a part of a special unit to quell protest over the course of several months. 
During South Africa's truth and reconciliation process decades later, government officials explained that the police's riot unit was set up in the country with the help of Israel a year and a half before the Soweto uprising. The riot unit was initially based in several centers around the country and drew on the skills of the Special Task Force, a new elite unit set up with Israeli assistance. Recruits were drawn from those with counterinsurgency training. One such recruit was Colonel Rui Rus, Swanepoel, who led a 58-strong task force into Soweto during the first 24 hours of the 1976 riots and took charge of operations in Alexandra during the same period. Just months before the apartheid South African police cracked down against the students that killed Peterson, Israel military units shot down and wounded Palestinians who were protesting repression and land theft in the West Bank, a political event that came to be called Land Day. Per South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the two governments shared police and military tactics to repress resistance from people fighting for liberation. Colonel Tian's Rui Russ Swanepoel led the forces into Soweto that day and gave the order to shoot the school children. He told the commission, I made my mark. I let it be known to the rioters I would not tolerate what was happening. I used appropriate force in Soweto and Alexandra, where I operated, that broke the back of the organizers. Similar to how patrols grew in response to slave resistance and how police became more militarized to suppress black activism, colonial policing engaged in repressive tactics to stop indigenous peoples from rising up and overthrowing apartheid rule. It did not have to be this way. At any point, the British and the Dutch could have ended their oppressive regimes, repatriated land, and paid reparations. They chose not to. The occupying government did not deserve the diplomatic and nonviolent efforts from black South Africans who repeatedly appealed to the hearts and minds of the apartheid government for freedom after continued rejection. For them, the land, wealth, and resources were more important than human life. And as organizers continued to fight back with more tactics, the apartheid government chose more police, more militarism, more guns, and a stronger occupation. In addition to Israel, apartheid South African police joined cooperation agreements with Argentina, Italy, Chile, France, and Taiwan to learn and share oppression and torture tactics against colonized people across the world. Colonel Swanepoel and others specially learned torture tactics from the French police and military who occupied Algeria. Other police learned from Alfredo Astiz, the notorious torturer in Argentina called the Blonde Angel of Death. Once again, I was mortified to learn about the centuries-old police suppression tactics shared across the globe to maintain oppression, slavery, and in this case, colonialism. In Ferguson, I remembered Palestinians tweeting tips about how to flush tear gas from our eyes and how to craft makeshift gas masks. I heard rumblings that the St. Louis County Police in control of the military equipment used in Ferguson were trained by the Israel's police and military units 
along with thousands of other U.S. law enforcement officials, in a program specifically designed to respond to terrorism and civilian protests. I really did not understand the full implications of the claim and was quite dismissive during the Ferguson uprising. It all felt too conspiratorial that the United States was funding police and defense forces in Israel and then the police departments in the U.S. would be training with them. But reading South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation documents revealed that governments across the globe have a long history of sharing torture and anti-protest measures against black and indigenous peoples fighting for freedom. This history made me appreciate why activists practiced internationalism, a political commitment to support oppressed people in other parts of the world. Resisting police violence in the U.S. could help activists elsewhere resist police violence under colonization. I spent every day on campus with students at Witwatersrand and the University of Cape Town. At Witz in Johannesburg, students were actively occupying the premises. They renamed the main hall Solomon House and decorated it with posters that read Asinamale, We Have No Money. They invited me to their plenaries and nominated a chair to run the meeting. These students were sleeping on the cafeteria floor, partly as an occupation, partly because many of them could not afford to go home for the summer break. Cups and hats collected just enough rand to purchase slices of white bread for them to share. Asina Male, while eating the bread or before fighting the men who sometimes stole the money to buy beer, the students read and strategized together and debated which theorists and revolutionaries informed their demands. Franz Fanon, Stephen Biko, Karl Marx, Thomas Sankara, Black women were pushing the space to include more black feminism and radical queer theorists. Student demands toward the university and toward each other grew from these conversations. Their demands evolved from condemning an increase in school fees to a much broader decolonial project that included calls for free education, protection for women, trans women, and gender nonconforming students, free university housing, the end of police brutality, and amnesty for charged student activists. Much to my shock, students were also still fighting to abolish classes and exams that were taught only in Afrikaans, the colonial language that the Soweto students had resisted decades earlier. I was most inspired by their demands to end contract and outsource labor at the university so that the black dining and custodial workers could receive full medical and tuition benefits. I spent full days on campus, leaving around midnight and returning at nine the next morning. One morning when I arrived, groups of black men dressed in all black uniforms with weapons lined the stairs to Solomon House. Student organizers were crying, bleeding, and running. They explained to me that early that morning, while they had been sound asleep inside the hall, private police quietly entered and forcibly removed activists without warning. The private force woke the men with punches to their faces and bodies and ripped the shirt off of at least one woman, grabbing and fondling her breasts. Another officer dragged a student outside by her locks, all of the guards were black, and so were all of the students. Regardless of the shared race, 
the private guards had still been tasked by a public university with the punitive social control of black people. I tried to help them find each other to regain communication and plan how to regroup. We decided to meet at a private location to do a head count and debrief about what happened. On my way there, I saw two teams of white students playing cricket on the most serene field I'd ever seen. Two black women activists who were attacked earlier also saw them play. Rather than walk around the field, they walked directly through the match, glacially, one pausing to smoke a cigarette. A coach yelled at them to hurry, and the players started moving with agitation. The activists outright retorted, This is our land! The next day, I flew to Cape Town to continue my trip. I almost canceled my flight because of the violence at Vitz. But students at UCT were also still actively protesting. And I wanted to learn about police violence in the township near Cape Town, Kayalitsha. On my way to the airport, I kept reliving the bloody scenes from the messy hall. I tried to think about a different time in Solomon House to replace the images. Like weeks before when a lead student organizer told the circle that their fallism movement was not about moving black people from Soweto to Santon, but transforming the entire racial and economic sphere of the land. Santon is one of the wealthiest, whitest suburbs of Johannesburg, where I happened to be staying at the time for free because a friend from my teaching days had arranged for me to borrow her friend's flat, who was summering elsewhere. I began laughing in the back of the Uber because I hadn't known what the student organizer was talking about until I whispered to Justin, Is that the same Santon where I'm staying? Justin had nodded, smiled, and shushed me. I kept that message close. I had to let go of what so many black people believed we needed to be free and safe in the United States. The idea that the police, private property, and capitalism were the way to protection and mobility. I didn't want what white people had to be the basis of our liberation. I wanted to be free. White people weren't even free. They were bound to rotten fruits of slavery, colonialism, and genocide, and found culture and identity in flags, borders, and badges. The police reforms that promised us equal protection under the law were equally protecting the violence that I wanted to eradicate. And black people, all people, in the U.S. and abroad, deserved so much more than that. 4. Love and Abolition Cape Town sits nestled between an ocean with crashing white waves and several majestic mountains. The cab driver offered a tour up the hillside to see the clouds. I could not refuse. When I got out of the car to take in the smell of the water, I turned to him and said, White people in America love telling black people to go back to Africa. I might let these racists start fundraising to send me. He laughed and answered, Please keep it a secret. The first white people who found out about its beauty did not leave. Johannesburg boasts a 75% black population. Less than 20% are white, and the remaining are Asian, Indian, and mixed-race people called colored. In Cape Town, about 20% of the population is black. More than half are colored, 
and a quarter are white. I stayed downtown in Zelda Holtzman's apartment. I met her son, Dimitri, through Pervy Shah, who had invited me to help launch an organization for law students, legal workers, and lawyers to support Black Lives Matter activism. Pervy and I had been on the same legal rapid response calls to provide jail and bail support for protests in Ferguson and Baltimore. She encouraged me to visit Dimitri's organization, Equal Education Law Center, when I flew to Cape Town. Dimitri offered to ask his mother if I could stay in her guest room, and she agreed. When I met Zelda, I told her what I'd been through in the movements against police violence in the U.S., and then about the private security that had violently attacked students at Vitz. She replied that while much had seemingly changed on the surface, so many repressive colonial practices had remained in policing. I was not prepared for what she said next. She was a former cop. And not just any cop. Zelda had been the highest-ranking black woman in the entire police force of South Africa after the fall of apartheid in 1994 and belonged to the group of five that was charged with transforming it nationwide. Zelda had been active in movements against colonial repression and dispossession of the land since she was 14 years old. A white police officer shot and killed her friend from high school at a protest they had attended together. The killing devastated and angered her, and she consequently joined the Black Consciousness Movement, the dominant rallying political platform for Black liberation at the time. She was later recruited to the African National Congress, ANC, an organization that the white apartheid government had banned and criminalized membership to at the time. The ANC had been mobilizing the public against the government and for the Freedom Charter, a revolutionary document that compiled and distilled the freedom dreams of thousands of South Africans into a set of measures that included democratic governance, equal rights, equal sharing of wealth, redistribution of land and the freedom of movement, equality before the law, the right to labor, unionize, and take paid maternity leave, the right to free education and cultural resources, the right to housing, safety, and health care, and the call for peace and friendship. The Charter provided tremendous impetus for various individuals and civic, business, religious, and community sectors of society to resist the apartheid government and fight for the future they believed in. Zelda organized to mobilize these sectors from underground and above ground at the grassroots level. Above ground, organizing entailed mass political education and working in communities around electricity access, laundry line access, the end to unfair criminal charges, and many more basic rights that were translated into political demands under the United Democratic Front that emerged in 1983. These above-ground organizing structures were interconnected to the underground structures that Zelda belonged to as well. The ANC had been pleading the colonial government and even British royalty for an end to repression, violence, and torture against black South Africans as early as the 1920s, 
and by the 1980s, they'd moved past the point of pleading and letter-writing to save their lives. She recalled, Peaceful protests through letters and other means were of no consequence to the apartheid government. They attacked and massacred peaceful protesters at Sharpville, but whether the ANC would engage in other tactics brought heated debates. The ANC ultimately decided to create a militant wing for political resistance. Umkonto we Sizwe, MK. To be an operative in the underground, she emphasized, meant to build the ANC presence among the people through day to day struggle around their class positions, to make the Freedom Charter come alive through a variety of tactics. Principled armed resistance to apartheid was one tactic which included attacks and bombings against apartheid military and police installations. The white settler colonial government ultimately collapsed under the resistance of freedom fighters like Zelda. The ongoing student protests and an international boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement to make companies like Shell and Coca-Cola lose money for supporting apartheid in South Africa. Under peace and transitional government agreements, the MK and other armed wings of anti-apartheid liberation movements integrated into the military and intelligence departments of the former apartheid government. To promote diversity and inclusion, Zelda was assigned to advance representation and equal opportunity in the South African Police Service, SAPS which was previously an all-white, male-dominated and oriented command structure. She recalled in a later public event that the SAPS was the most brutal arm of the state. It conducted the general day-to-day oppression of black South Africans, including the murderous shootings against protesters and people demanding their basic rights. For almost a decade, she attempted to reform and transform SAPS. She eventually left her post in 2003 with not much hope for the police. She explained to me, I held an earlier view of police to be a resource for people when they need protection or support, but not for police to remove the agency of people to engage in ways that secure their safety. But police act as if they are the only resource, and their obligation is to the state, property, and people with property. When the state and the people are disconnected, then the police are disconnected from the people and view them as the enemy. The state is not enabling the basic needs, visions, and values contained in the Freedom Charter. People protest the corruption, and the police protect the state. Turn the guns on the people. Police will say, bad apples, and we need trials for these extrajudicial killings. However, it is a pattern and not isolation which led me to think of it not as extrajudicial killings, but as judicial. You put them in uniform, give them weapons of war, and send them to march. Cops don't look to protect our safety at protests. No support, no emergency preparedness. They are out to do battle in a war zone and act at the least provocation. This is a war of inequality, but we need a reimagination of a resource for people's safety 
separate from police as the foundation for that, but embedded in the people. Conflict resolution, peace committees, street committees, block committees, democratic expressions of people-powered projects. The hashtag fees must fall and hashtag roads must fall student movements echoed her criticisms of police violence and broader systemic inequality. For decades under apartheid, the Dutch and the English dispossessed black South Africans of their homes and land and sold it cheaply to white farmers and gave it away in many instances. As of 2019, South Africa was 90% black, but 72% of the land owned by individuals was owned by white people. The students I met at WITS were making demands against the ongoing legacies of colonialism and their goals, free education, the end to contractual labor, land, mirrored the Freedom Charter. Zelda was very supportive of the student movements because they championed decolonization discourse, the removal of statues, symbols, ideas, and systems that facilitated the theft of their land, labor, and lives. This connected to her involvement in the Black Consciousness Movement of the 1970s, where they called for equal education, but not equal in comparison to whites, the master but equal to the needs of the oppressed people rising up. Paradoxically, the more I wanted to return to my movement in the U.S., the less committed I became to my movement's demands. After spending time with Zelda, student and worker activists at WITS and the University of Cape Town, the organizers in the townships and the lawyers at Equal Education, I had begun to grow weary of saying Black Lives Matter. People abroad were fighting for land, free education, the end to contractual labor, real democracy, and decolonization. I was inspired by their intergenerational relationships and annoyed that in the U.S., many of our elder Black liberals in the mainstream media condemned our music for its profane language, and young Black people too easily dismissed the messy yet rich traditions that made us possible. For too many of us in the beginning, Black Lives Matter was a response to violence or a non-indictment. South Africa demonstrated that we deserved much more. I felt completely politically undone and inadequate. I've been reading so much history, but had not quite yet developed a political analysis connected to any tradition of organizing. I was getting smarter, not necessarily getting free. I wasn't alone. Phil Agnew, a co-founder of Dream Defenders, told me he'd felt the same way after returning from a pivotal trip abroad. In the aftermath of Trayvon Martin's death, Phil had zeal for leadership within the Florida-based multiracial organization, but his political analysis was nascent. He was concerned that the younger white college students advocating for socialism in the organization might be patronizing provocateurs or maybe even government infiltrators. Phil believed racism was the primary issue of oppression, not capitalism, as if the two were not intertwined. 
He made a pact with another organizer to protect Dream Defenders from the aggressive students and to ensure that D.D. would focus on ending racial profiling, ending the school-to-prison pipeline, and repealing the Stand Your Ground law. By the time Phil traveled to Ferguson for the uprising in 2014, Dream Defenders were campaigning to end mass incarceration in the state of Florida and learning about prison abolition. They had just added Michelle Alexander and Angela Davis to their advisory board. Like Nile, Phil did not quite recall whether police abolition specifically was a part of his vocabulary. After one police killing in Miami, members put up wanted posters around town with the cop's name and face to pressure the prosecutor into bringing charges. His heart was in the right place, but he was trying to sort out which traditions he belonged to as an organizer. All that changed when Phil joined organizers in Ferguson, Ohio, and Florida to go to Brazil for a week-long political education and solidarity gathering with Movimento Semteja, the Landless Workers' Movement. Phil went to Brazil, studied, and took classes where he finally learned what the early organizers and dream defenders meant by socialism. They weren't trying to infiltrate. They were trying to improve our class analysis. The dream defenders embarked on a social media blackout and started political education reading groups around anti-capitalism, racism, sexism, and patriarchy. The organization hired Rachel Gilmer, an organizer and researcher with the African American Policy Forum, as their director of strategy. By 2016, Dream Defenders had reshaped their members, sharpened their feminist politics, shifted their leadership, and launched new campaigns that were rooted in abolition, socialism, feminism, and internationalism. D.D. waged statewide campaigns against incarceration and initiated delegations abroad so that young activists could learn from Palestinians who wanted to be free from military occupation. The group transformed from the 2012 activists who inspired millions of people to demand justice for Trayvon Martin. I was evolving, too. When I returned from South Africa to Cambridge in early 2016, I shared my concerns and hopes with student organizers in a meeting on the top floor of Wasserstein Hall. We were committed to social justice and our demands were well-intentioned, though I feared that we had not yet developed a shared political analysis to make sure we were fighting for the right thing. Between 2014 and 2017, our demands mostly mirrored the students' demands at almost 100 universities. Increase in racial diversity among students, faculty, administration, and curriculum. I have been making the same demands since college. This time around, many students wanted schools to issue statements that condemned police violence and affirmed black lives. We did not want white professors to ask exam questions where we had to hypothetically defend cops or, as one professor did, list all of the charges that an activist could face for protesting the non-indictment decisions. 
Yet unlike the students in Cape Town and Johannesburg, most of us had not taken the time to undergo political education together to develop an analysis around power and justice. We had never interrogated why we believed that justice meant police convictions and whether a more diverse faculty would eliminate campus racism. Most importantly, we had not taken the time to connect our organizing to the workers on campus, including the clinical, custodial, and dining staff, who were especially vulnerable to marginalization, racism, and exploitation. Finally, we had yet to confront the fact that our well-written demands were insufficient measures toward our liberation. What are our politics? I asked the emotionally tense room. Was our goal for a few women, queer people, black people, to integrate into positions of power to make change? Or did we belong to the traditions of organizers trying to dismantle systemic racism and inequality so that more people can thrive? We did not have an answer. Rathna Ramamurti, who would become instrumental in redeveloping our political education and demands, was hesitant. She, like more than half of the room, feared that taking the time to read and debate would cause us to lose momentum. A South African graduate student who had been active in student protests abroad suggested that we do both, continue to organize for our demands and add a political education component to our movement. Beginning in February 2016, our student formation, which we called Reclaim HLS after the Black Tape incident, changed again. Several members left after furious debates. They thought we were sacrificing our chance for real change to read and become radical. But radical, which according to Angela Davis means to grasp at the roots of a problem, is good. Fighting for a new society where everyone can thrive is radical in a country built on genocide, land theft, and slavery. We tried to convince those students that we needed to understand radical traditions, decolonization, socialism, abolition, before we could criticize or dismiss them. We split. Our smaller group of activists decided to study and organize in the most visible, beautiful hall on the law school's campus, right downstairs from the meeting. Drawing lessons from the student movements abroad who renamed their campus buildings without the permission of the university, we renamed the space Belinda Hall after Belinda Sutton, a black woman who was once owned by Isaac Royal. Royal was a slave owner who bequeathed the money that founded Harvard Law School. Belinda Sutton sued for a pension when Royal fled the country during the Revolutionary War. She won, which may be the first successful case of reparations in Massachusetts history. We bought art, decor, even air mattresses into the space. At first, I spent the night regularly, but when I became pregnant with my second child, Garvey, I couldn't sleep on the floor anymore. Each day, we organized a plenary, nominated a chair, and made decisions democratically about the future of our movement. Rothna stayed. She maintained a daily schedule of events in Belinda Hall, including our political education readings, performances, and speeches. Union organizers and striking dining workers held meetings and rallies there. Despite what we perceived to be punitive threats from the administration, we persisted. 
Affinity groups began holding their meetings there in solidarity with us. It was the only space on the entire campus where anyone could attend or teach a class, regardless of whether they were custodial staff, dining workers, clinical faculty, professors, students, or even affiliated with the university. As Reclaim HLS, we initially demanded a critical race theory program. The critical race theory movement is a collection of activists and scholars engaged in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. Derek Bell was foundational to the movement's creation, scholarship, and activism. Student activism pushed Harvard Law to hire Bell, who became its first black tenured professor. Bell eventually left Harvard Law in protest because they did not hire and tenure black women. He never returned and died as a visiting professor at New York University. Students in Belinda Hall wanted professors like Bell, who taught how the law intersected with racial justice, feminism, and colonialism. We kept that demand and decided to run our own critical race theory program in Belinda Hall. We invited a few scholars, and word spread so quickly, some scholars started reaching out to us to come. Legendary organizer and strategist Marshall Gans expressed interest in leading a workshop. Mari Matsuda, Chuck Lawrence, Catherine McKinnon, Cornell West, Robin D.G. Kelly, Margaret Montoya, Kiara Bridges, and Justin Hansford all held teach-ins. We held many meetings and events twice to accommodate the schedules of workers. Any given gathering could have from six people to several hundred. Student activists from other universities sent delegations, and some started political education programs back on their campuses. And of course, whenever there was a police killing or another tragic event in the world, students, faculty, and staff, even the ones who threatened us with disciplinary action, knew to gather in Belinda Hall for support, reflection, and action the next day. For our very first political education meeting, we read a soon-to-be-published essay by historian Robin D.G. Kelly called Slipping in the Darkness. A modified version was eventually published in the Boston Review as Black Study, Black Struggle. More important than giving students the answer to our racial justice fight, Robin's essay reminded us that we come from a long tradition of radical Black activists who engaged in love, study, and struggle toward freedom. There was no one answer to stop the violence we encountered on campus and in the streets. We needed to form an analysis to evaluate the issues and determine what we wanted to build. Over time, he explained, the university may soften and concede to our cultural demands, but rarely on the transformational ones. This is why buildings will be renamed and all black or people of color safe spaces will be created out of a sliver of university real estate. But proposals to eliminate tuition and forgive student debt for the descendants of the dispossessed and the enslaved will be derided as absurd. The law school proved him right. They eventually met our original demands to make administrative diversity hires, to remove Isaac Royal's family shield, and to set up a memorial for those enslaved by the royal family, a rock near the library stairs. 
Students are still campaigning to divest Harvard's multi-billion endowment from fossil fuels and private prisons. Robin's essay confirmed that we were on the right track. Some students and faculty mocked our movement. One day, we'd found surveillance bugs planted underneath the tables. On social media, a law firm partner said he'd made sure not hire us. Two classmates shouted at activists who removed Trump signs from Belinda Hall. Who were we, a bunch of students at Harvard Law, whining about being oppressed? True, all of us were in very different positions than the unhoused people who slept at the intersections in Harvard Square, and far from the workers who cleaned each table and chair in between classes. Our student loans were going to be burdens when we became attorneys, though differently from the payday loans I suffered in college. Yet many of us had been organizers before law school and lived in the thin, overlapping circle between the exploited and the elite. My first summer home, I picked my mother up from a food and clothes pantry. I told you, I told all of y'all that I had a daughter who went to Harvard, she said loudly to the volunteers. Harvard or Howard? Harvard, Mama. Howard is in D.C. Additionally, critics of our campus organizing did not value what I held dear as an organizer. People who care about changing the world should also change where they belong. Families, schools, jobs, and neighborhoods. For us, it happened to be the university. Through experimentation, failure, and growth, we built multiracial, cross-sector unity in creating the versions of society we wanted. Writing from his San Quentin prison cell, political prisoner and movement theorist George Jackson envisioned liberation projects that required the multiracial, cross-sector organizing of black, brown, and white people in factories, universities, and the streets. He considered all of us to be victims under capitalist exploitation and called for campus activists to counter the ill effects of fascism at its training site. Fascism, according to Jackson, is a dynamic and evolving set of political, racist, militaristic, and police-based responses to anything that threatens the capitalist ruling class. Campuses, including Ivy League schools, can certainly become training sites for fascism because that's partially where the ruling classes are preserved. Donald Trump went to the University of Pennsylvania. Chris Kobach and Joshua Hawley both have Yale Law degrees. Raphael Ted Cruz went to Harvard Law. So did former press secretary Kaylee McEnany, who was a student there while we were organizing in Belinda Hall. They tout their alma maters all the way to the courts, Congress, and the West Wing to advance white nationalist agendas. Through all of the criticism, the organizers persisted. In a large circle in Belinda, we read Robin's paper like a lost biblical text. We especially debated his call for maroonage. The word maroons originates from the Spanish cimarrones, meaning wild or pharaoh. Maroons were formerly enslaved Africans who ran away and formed self-sustaining communities of care, comprised of anywhere from a handful of people to several thousands, lasting less than a year for some to more than a century for others. 
As soon as the Spanish crown granted permission for settler colonists to transport enslaved Africans to the Americas in 1501, black people resisted and ran away when they landed. Colonial governments in response began prohibiting black people from carrying weapons and assaulting white people, and Maroons continued to steal and launch raids against plantation owners. Maroon rebellions and raids toward freedom prompted European colonizers to request more resources for law enforcement and patrols to preempt and stop raids from Maroons. Sometimes colonizer governments entered truces to stop the wars, as was the case in 1618 when a Spanish king issued a charter to a large Maroon community in Mexico. This eventually established the first officially recognized settlement for Maroons in the Americas. Earlier settlements happened, too. In 1526, enslaved Africans rebelled against their Spanish captors, who attempted the first European settlement in what became the continental U.S., with the additional raids from the indigenous and mutinous settlers, the Spanish fled. This was the first recorded instance of black slavery in North America, and more importantly, the first slave rebellion in North America. Africans then joined indigenous tribes for refuge. These Maroons became the first permanent settlement of non-indigenous people in the U.S. Maroons lived freely, or at least unenslaved, throughout the Americas in various capacities nearly a full century before indentured Africans were brought to the shores of a Virginia colony in 1619. Robin hoped that students would model themselves after the fugitive and interdependent relationships that Maroons built among each other. Historian Sylviane Diouf explains that many free blacks lived in subservience to white society and remained controlled by discriminatory laws and customs that guided their interactions. Maroons, however, lived underneath a society that accepted slavery, but their secrecy forced them into a set of interdependent relationships with other Maroons, animals, and the earth. Robin made a parallel case for students to use the university only to get what they needed. Maroon stole tools from the master's house to create the community they believed in, rather than try to use the tools to fix the master's house. He charged us to build our own loving spaces to study and struggle where we could experiment with democracy, accountability, mutual aid, and care paying homage to Maroon communities who practiced this for centuries. Rothna, the organizer who was initially skeptical of our political education journey, later explained that our organizing around the essay changed her thinking more than anything else in her life. Something about that language helped me understand the difference between trying to make an unjust system more inclusive versus building an alternative vision that can also be used to put pressure on the existing system. We were confronted with a choice. Keep organizing to make our school a country live up to the ideals that it claimed, or build beloved communities to transform ourselves as we organized in pursuit of liberation. We fused the two to keep organizing and implemented our own demands to create the world we wanted.
Alongside Marunage, Robin introduced and reintroduced the concept of abolition to many Belinda activists. Of course, we knew of abolition as a project of elimination. The word derives from Latin's abolere, to destroy. Generally, when I had heard the term, it was a call to end an oppressive system. Slavery abolition, the abolition of child labor, debt abolition, prison industrial complex abolition. But in the draft of his essay, Robin coupled the word with love and future, expanding the possibility of our community building and transformation. James Baldwin understood love as agency probably better than anyone. For him, it meant to love ourselves as black people. It meant making love the motivation for making revolution. It meant envisioning a society where everyone is embraced, where there is no oppression, where every life is valued, even those who may once have been our oppressors. It did not mean seeking white people's love and acceptance or seeking belonging in the world created by our oppressor. In the fire next time, he is unequivocal. I do not know many Negroes who are eager to be accepted by white people, still less to be loved by them. They, the blacks, simply don't wish to be beaten over the head by the whites every instant of our brief passage on this planet. But here is the catch. If we are committed to an abolitionist future, we have no choice but to love all. To love all is to fight relentlessly to end exploitation and oppression everywhere even on behalf of those who think they hate us. This was Baldwin's point, perhaps his most misunderstood and reviled point. By suggesting that we were committed to an abolitionist future, Robin not so subtly called into question the direction our movements were heading. Most people in the movements that I belonged to at the time, from Black Lives Matter to Belinda Hall, had not yet professed a commitment to an abolitionist future. We have been calling for the arrest, indictments, and convictions of killer cops, an assertion of black life in public spheres, and the diversification of systems that participated in the exploitation we've been fighting. We initially expected that kinder and browner cops, prosecutors, judges, and faculty would alleviate the violence. In contrast, he explained, students at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill were demanding that the university end their ties to prison labor, disarm campus police, provide free child care for students, faculty, and staff, and offer a $25 per hour minimum wage. UNC's demands reflected the revolutionary demands from organizers in South Africa, the Netherlands, and Brazil. It was the tradition of organizing I believed in. Never before had I read about love and abolition that way. For me, slavery abolition sought to end an evil institution, and death penalty abolition sought to end an immoral government practice. But in Belinda, I felt responsible for organizing and molding abolitionist futures with other people, which was much broader than the elimination of any one particular system practice. It was a politic, a paradigm to organize, navigate, and recreate the world. Love offered me more agency than resistance or trauma could. 
and my growing desire to learn and take risks with others became a source of inspiration for my freedom, for our freedom. Fred Moten and Stefano Harney, whom Robin cites in his Maroonage essay, illuminated abolition further for us during a reading of their text, The Undercommons, Fugitive Planning and Black Study, at Belinda Hall. Ruth Wilson Gilmore Racism is the state-sanctioned and or extra-legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerabilities to premature, social, civil, and or corporeal death. What is the difference between this and slavery? What is, so to speak, the object of abolition? Not so much the abolition of prisons, but the abolition of a society that could have prisons, that could have slavery, that could have the wage, and therefore not abolition as the elimination of anything but abolition as the founding of a new society. Moton and Harney revealed a belief that I hadn't realized I held. At that point, I had been somewhat comfortable with the notion of reforming prisons, police, and prosecutors because I thought that our society had to have them. I knew the origins of these systems and that they were working according to their design, but creating new societies felt more daunting than tweaking the terms of the state-sanctioned violence, whether it was slavery, capitalism, or police. Moten and Harney also directly challenged what I was being trained to do as a lawyer, which is to keep everything in its place. Defend the Constitution. Don't question its existence. Zealously represent your clients. Don't be an activist against injustice in the courtroom. Champion progressive policies that secure lawyers for people in concentrated poverty. Don't bother to eliminate concentrated wealth. Abolition as the founding of a new society disrupts any allegiance to any republic for which it stands and begs us to ask, what should we be standing for? The U.S. once stood for genocide, slavery, disenfranchisement, and currently stands for militarism, policing, and the concentration of wealth for a few. Abolition destroys the stubborn allegiances that keep society so violent and births new possibilities to live under a dynamic democracy led by the people. Lawyering in court increased my urgency for these abolitionist futures. As I began my last year of law school in 2016, I started working as a public defender in the Criminal Justice Institute, CJI. A legal clinic at Harvard founded by the legendary Charles Ogletree, Jr., Professors Ronald Sullivan and Delia Umuna run the clinic. Sullivan is a storied criminal defense attorney. He's won the release of more wrongfully incarcerated people than anyone else in the country. Before coming to Harvard, Umuna had represented hundreds of indigent clients as a lawyer with the D.C. Public Defender Service, the most reputable public defender office in the country for legal training and advocacy. In CGI, a team of public defense attorneys trained students to represent indigent clients in the Boston area, regardless of the charge. I had been dreaming of that moment, of being trained as a real lawyer fighting for justice in court, since my mom told me I had to decades earlier. My suits were fresh because I had just given birth to Garvey and my body weight was fluctuating. The state's letter of approval for me to practice 
was folded in the pocket of my thick brown letter portfolio. I was ready to go. Everything about court was wrong. The parking, the weather, the expectation of justice. As soon as I walked in, I saw a giant glass box that covered the entrance to a jail. The court clerk would call the case, and a cop would bring a defendant downstairs to sit inside the cage. A tiny circle was cut into the glass box, and each defendant put their mouth through it to speak to their lawyers, the prosecutor, and the judge, and then swap their mouth with their ear to listen. The demeaning dance, ear-mouth, ear-mouth, was repeated throughout the day. When I visited clients in the jail, it happened again. I had to clench my skirt as I kneeled on the floor to speak with clients because we could only communicate through the thin slot typically used for food trays. Police killings are horrible. The victims cause us to storm the streets, but the survivors end up here. All of those marches and court battles for improve the criminal justice system did not comfort my client's knees on that filthy floor. The defendants weren't perfect. They grew up in the same racist, ableist, homophobic, classist, and patriarchal society that I did. When I would walk to speak with court staff or pick up paperwork from the fax machine, a few black men waiting for their cases to be called would make comments about how I looked, my body, my ass, specifically. The first time it happened, I called Marbury and cried about how I did not feel comfortable walking to the front of the courtroom anymore. Damn. I did not go to law school to become a civil rights lawyer for this. I was on their side. I soon realized that the men who made those comments knew exactly what they were doing and who they were doing it to. The only other black woman lawyer in the courtroom at the time was a prosecutor. I never heard them make any comments like that toward her, though she had so much more power over their lives than I did. So I started sharply speaking back. What did you just say? And can you repeat that louder? Surprised at my response, nobody ever did. They'd stay silent, hold my gaze, or try to laugh it off. Being poor does not make someone less patriarchal, just like being queer does not make someone less racist. It all just manifests differently. Tweaking the court with modest reforms focuses too narrowly on improving specific practices, whereas building an abolitionist future ends these deep forms of violence that underlie our relationships to each other. Judges and prosecutors were also problematic. Both almost always automatically accepted whatever was on a police report, despite wide knowledge of police fabrication. Defense attorneys prayed for particular judges to preside over their clients' cases based on how racist, reasonable, or realistic they perceived the judge. We had to argue to divert people away from jail and ask for probation as an alternative. Prosecutors overwhelmingly opposed these arguments, regardless of the underlying charge. One time, a court psychologist evaluated one of my clients. She found that my client lacked comprehension of the charges and was not competent to stand trial. She told the judge that my client would probably never regain competence to stand trial due to a traumatic brain injury and did not meet the criteria to be imprisoned or confined in a psychiatric institution. The prosecutor still argued against my client's release. 
The judge, technically unable to imprison my client because there had been no trial, issued a continuance to schedule another hearing as an excuse to detain my client in jail for several more months. As we chanted in Ferguson, the whole damn system was indeed guilty. Probation brought no relief. I argued successfully to divert my clients from jail, and they were still under the watchful presence of probation employees who constantly threatened their freedom. Corrections is a misnomer since they spent zero time correcting anyone's behavior and all of their time monitoring and inflicting punishment for anyone who fell short of the stipulations. The stipulations are rife with contradictions. For example, they expected one of my unhoused clients to stay away from police, even though the police disproportionately patrol homeless people. If the police arrive at a homeless encampment, then what should people do? Cops can arrest people for loitering. Cops even have the legal power to stop them from walking away under the guise of suspicious behavior. And cops can chase or shoot people who run for no reason. I had a small and racially diverse caseload. Everybody was poor. Whatever trepidations I had about abolition, letting all the lawbreakers out of jail quickly dissipated because most of the criminals were actually just poor people. Because of capitalism, racism, and ableism, the darkest and poorest peoples in the United States are relegated to live precarious lives where they do what they can to survive sometimes including breaking the law. Police do not and cannot address the society that creates racial and economic exploitation, only punish people who steal, fight, burglarize, and trespass because of it. Rather than eliminating the unjust conditions, cities and the federal government send in police to manage the inequality. Cops lie and make careless arrests, so they often punish people who have not committed any crime at all. Police also have wide discretion to arrest someone they deem disorderly. Justin Hansford described enforcement this way to me. Law is what's on the books. Order is what's in a cop's head. Jails are full of people who are there because a cop decided so, not because anything happened. Certainly jails are full of lawbreakers, too. So are our homes, schools, churches, and grocery stores. The primary differences are race, class, and police presence. Presidents gloat in memoirs and speeches about smoking weed or inhaling lines of cocaine during their high school and college years while championing legislation that deports or imprisons poor people over the same thing. Cops overwhelmingly arrest economically exploited people, like my clients, approximately 10 million people each year. Five million of those arrested go to jail once, at least one million go to jail twice, and half a million go to jail three or more times. Half of the people who are arrested and jailed at least twice in one year are unemployed, unlikely to have a high school diploma, and have annual incomes of $10,000 or less. In 2014, people incarcerated in prison had a median annual income of less than $20,000 before they were imprisoned, 41% less than their non-incarcerated peers. 
Incarcerated white men had incomes 54% lower than their non-incarcerated peers. Black men, 44% lower. Black women, 47% lower. Hispanic men, 34% lower. Hispanic women, 21% lower. Once facing jail, people who could afford to hire private attorneys usually did. Others who could not afford them had to raise or borrow money, find extra work, or put up their houses to try to avoid jail. The remaining ones found themselves with someone like me to help argue for their freedom, a public defender or a law student in a clinic. My clients weren't inherently bad or evil, even the one who repeated racist lines from Trump about black people. We had serious conversations about their language and ideas because I refused to tolerate the racism. Yet I chose to continue representing that particular client because ultimately, as I was learning in Belinda, I had a much larger commitment to fight relentlessly to end exploitation everywhere, even on behalf of those who think they hate us. The routine violence from cops and the courts reminded me of a quote from an Audre Lorde text that we discussed in Belinda Hall. For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support. While Lord was originally criticizing white feminists, I realized that her assessment could be applied to me too. Many people define, as I did, the current legal system as their sole source of support for justice and safety. If police and jails are the sole sources of support for safety, then someone might feel threatened by abolition and comforted by reforms to improve the system. Lord's quote is a reminder that genuine change comes from dismantling oppressive systems, not taking tools to fix them to work for everyone. The master's house is the problem, not just who can access it or whether people will be treated equitably upon arrival. The criminal legal system is similar. Cops did not need to treat my black and Latinx clients the same way they treated my white clients, for they were all facing the same glass box inside that Roxbury courtroom together. Additionally, some community members resist abolition because they rely on police as a source of employment. Cities use policing as a jobs program, the same way that states use prisons to revitalize rural economies. Many cops, especially the cops that I knew, entered law enforcement because it was the only job in our neighborhood that could help feed their families and maybe buy a small house. Criticizing protesters who wanted to divest money from police, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot said that activists were eliminating one of the few tools that the city has to create middle-class incomes for black and brown folks. In her own words, cops were the master's tools that Lightfoot sought to protect. Their protection came along with the destruction of the black communities in Chicago who have faced sexual violence, ableism, assault, torture, and murder by the police. Black and brown people like my clients did not need more police. They needed different tools that abolition offered to address the root causes of violence. 
For people like my clients and my family, friends, and neighbors, the violence they were accused of stemmed from inequality, patriarchy, and racism. Some stole, some fought, some acted violently on their racist beliefs. As George Jackson argued, criminals and crime arise from material, economic, sociopolitical causes. Jackson knew as well as anyone. Police arrested him for a $70 gas station stick-up. A prosecutor charged him with armed robbery, and a judge sentenced him to one year to life in prison. The black men who made the comments toward me in the court were not evil people. They were patriarchal, but not evil. I'm sure whatever landed them in court likely arose from material, economic, and sociopolitical causes and related to their behavior toward me and others. That did not mean that I had to accept or tolerate it. I rejected it, but I also rejected the power that the police, prosecutors, probation officers, and judges had over them. Those days in court also revealed a limitation in my understanding of resources. I had been trapped in regurgitating that we could make abolition possible by providing resources to the most marginalized groups in our society. This is only partially true. I had witnessed people who have immense resources cause more violence than everyone locked in every jail combined. None of my clients started the war on terror that killed hundreds of thousands of soldiers and civilians, nor did they sell lead-riddled toys, makeup, and jewelry that poisoned children and teenagers around the world. I've watched a judge sentence a black man to nearly a decade over a carjacking, but never imprison an automobile company executive who ignored or hid manufacturing defects that caused thousands of crashes that broke bones, shattered teeth, and burned people alive. People with resources were not necessarily innocent of harming others. Quite the contrary. Their wealth accumulation resulted in environmental violence against the planet and our flesh. Economic violence through the labor exploitation that makes their wealth possible. Police violence that manages poor people in the projects, on the streets, and at the borders. And wars that lead to casualties over oil, coal, natural gas, and precious metals. All of their violent behavior was perfectly legal. So they weren't lawbreakers. Nevertheless, their violence had to be abolished, too. While I was working in the public defender clinic, I continued organizing in Belinda. There, my decolonization analysis and budding abolitionist politics started to collide and crash. Across the globe, my new friends and comrades were arguing about removing structures and practices left over from colonial governments. But by the time I discovered the concept of abolition democracy, my ideas about decolonization made me realize that I had to stop romanticizing slavery abolitionists who were committed to racial capitalism and colonialism. The promise and perils of the short-lived Reconstruction period and abolition democracy after slavery informs the inspiration and theory for many scholars of abolition, including Angela Davis. When I finally studied her work on abolition in Belinda, 
I was grateful for how much it had started to influence a generation of budding contemporary abolitionists like the Dream Defenders, BYP 100, students in South Africa, and me. Davis uses Abolition Democracy, the eponym of her book, to explain that Du Bois thus argues that a host of democratic institutions are needed to fully achieve abolition, thus abolition democracy. Abolition happened in the destruction of slavery and barely even that. The day after the Civil War, four million black people found themselves in the same position. They were in the day before the war ended. On plantations, no economic power, no political power. For abolition democracy, she explains, and new institutions should have been created to incorporate black people into the social order. Abolition democracy has become such a gift to students and practitioners seeking to make the prison industrial complex obsolete. Where I thought that decolonization and abolition were colliding, I eventually realized that activists from across the world were taking these paradigms and forging new and revolutionary ideas and practices on top of them. We needed abolition democracy, and certainly much more. In Black Reconstruction, W.E.B. Du Bois uses abolition democracy in two ways. First, to describe a progressive moral movement for the abolition of slavery by laborers, small capitalists, and politicians. Du Bois described their viewpoint as, the abolition of slavery meant not simply abolition of legal ownership of the slave, it meant the uplift of slaves and their eventual incorporation into the body civil, politic, and social of the United States. Right after he says that, this outlook and theory of the abolitionists received tremendous impetus from the war. Du Bois applauded the courage and sacrifices of this group. He wrote that radical abolitionists such as Thaddeus Stevens were not just calling for the end of slavery, but for education, universal suffrage for black men, and most radically, land confiscation and redistribution from Southern plantation owners to newly freed Blacks. This way, Black people could gain political, intellectual, and economic power to prevent their re-enslavement. But what did it mean for abolition democracy to take place on top of systems of colonialism and capitalism? The idea of land redistribution for economic power though progressive, was obviously tortured. It was a recommendation made possible through the white settler slaughter of indigenous peoples and land theft. For settler colonialism to work, native peoples must be perpetually disappeared and displaced. Yet for some progressive abolitionists, black people had to benefit from the settler colonial project too, just as poor white people benefited. Early 19th century free black land settlements were made possible through federal acts, which were especially important for black people formerly enslaved by Native Americans. Under President Abraham Lincoln, white settlers and black freedmen received land through the Homestead Act. And while some abolitionists fought for indigenous people's rights, that did not stop their commitment to colonial and capitalist expansion. I also had gathered that Du Bois was using abolition democracy to describe a set of debates, an eventual alliance between two groups of prominent, powerful abolitionists, 
The first were the liberal small capitalist abolitionists I have described. The second group were northern industrial capitalists. Slavery started threatening the profits in the North's industrial sectors and had to be stopped. Northern industry's promise of expansion prevailed over slavery's proven longevity, and large capitalists wanted to abolish slavery so that they could exploit the labor of free blacks alongside poor and working-class whites. It was more profitable for companies if they hired workers and paid them a wage, because workers sell their labor for income and then used that income to purchase goods and services. Slaves had no income and could not purchase anything. Black people were a reservoir of laborers and potential consumers. Because of the war, industrialization was spreading quickly, and capitalists wanted to grow their wealth by hiring more workers. Additionally, northern industrialist abolitionists also wanted freedom and suffrage for black people because it gave capitalists critical voting power in the South. Industrial capitalists ruled the Republican Party. They planned to prevent the Democratic Party from regaining political control in the South to reinstitute slavery. Ninety percent of black people lived in the South at the end of the Civil War. With the power of their vote, Black people could presumably stop the rebirth of slavery and help the industrial Republican Party stay in power. The longer the Republican Party could stay in power, the greater the advantage that capitalists would have in the rapidly changing nation. Between two options to actualize abolition democracy, one by the liberal small capitalist abolitionists and the other by northern industrialist capitalists, the latter won. Industry rejected the relatively progressive idea of federal seizures and redistribution of slaveholders' property for black people. Companies would have been threatened by a government precedent to redistribute other kinds of capital to people who were being exploited, like workers in their factories. Thus, Du Bois explains that abolition democracy did happen, a version primarily driven by industrial capitalists. Votes for Negroes were, in truth, a final compromise between business and abolition, and were forced on abolition by business as the only method of realizing the basic principles of abolition democracy. Industrialization grew rampantly after Reconstruction. Du Bois explained that it began in 1876, an exploitation which was built on much the same sort of slavery which it helped to overthrow in 1863. It murdered democracy in the United States so completely that the world does not recognize its corpse. Instead of joining the fight for a more egalitarian society where black workers and white workers could have had economic power together, these northern capitalist abolitionists fought for Negro suffrage and the freedom to exploit black labor. Though Du Bois affirmed abolition democracy as a courageous viewpoint, he seemed ambivalent about whether it was the correct one. He was critical of the proponents of abolition democracy because they demanded full citizenship for black people, but were nevertheless instinctively capitalistic, standing on the side of the exploiter scant sympathy for the exploited. He said of Thaddeus Stevens, who was at the heart 
the greatest and most uncompromising of abolitionist Democrats, but who advocated not only for universal suffrage and free schools, but protection for Pennsylvania iron. Yet in that protection, he had just as distinctly in mind the welfare of the laborer as the profit of the employer. Thaddeus Stevens's protection over Pennsylvania iron would be analogous to today's police and prison abolitionists protecting Walmart or Amazon, two major capitalist corporations who take advantage of the people police in prison, poor people, black people, indigenous people, and disabled workers. If the liberal version of abolition democracy had prevailed with its ongoing commitments to capitalism, Black people, poor whites, immigrants, and indigenous people would have probably been sorted into the most exploited workers today, and thus the most likely to be policed. I love how novelist Panasha Chigomadzi asks in the Boston Review, What is capitalism if not a system sorting who is most fit for suffering, exploitation, and extraction? It's possible that some black people would have been absorbed into high-ranking positions through a more progressive abolition democracy. With the system that we have today, Barack Obama became president, with millions of black people cycling in and out of jails, and Kamala Harris became vice president, with cops shooting hundreds of black people every year. The withdrawal of federal troops from the South during Reconstruction was indeed a betrayal to the promise of protection to newly freed black people in the United States. But there was also an allegiance to capitalism among the abolitionists that led to the further exploitation of people from all backgrounds, black, indigenous, white, and immigrant. Mixing abolition and capitalism was not enough to ensure the full liberation of black people then, and it is not enough to ensure the full liberation of everyone now. Abolition democracy did not entail justice for Native Americans either. On the contrary, the entire project could have been built on indigenous land to the exclusion of indigenous peoples. Charles Sumner and Thaddeus Stevens were for land redistribution for black people, which was laudable.